Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thanks. All right. Nice music, by the way. Yes, I can. All right, good. All right. right. So, so.
Thanks a lot, Becky. All right. Good evening, everybody. Um, 8 p.m., an hour later than we usually have our spaces, but I think it's worth the wait. Thanks a lot for joining everyone um, for this, the first of our combined uh, collaboration between ourselves, Africa Uncensored, and um, Mwango Capital. Um, we're really excited about <clears throat> the spaces that we're going to be uh, hosting over the next couple of weeks, discussing different things about our economy, our politics, and uh, a few things in between. And the first one that we thought we'd speak about is uh, kleptocracy in Kenya. Um, the background to this, of course, is um, of course the, the, the economic situation in this country, the concern that people from across the board have about the state, not just of our economy, but on the, of the predation um, on our economy by various people at various levels of government and outside people with le various levels of access, but also casting our eyes backwards to what we've experienced in this country um, in, in, in terms of corruption and its evolution. Where are we now? What can we do going forward? This, of course, being a really important year. My name is John Allen Namu. I am the co-founder of Africa Uncensored. And my co-host this evening is uh, the Founder of Mwango Capital, Mr. Eric Mukaya. I'll uh, give you a chance to introduce, uh, not to introduce yourself, but to say hello uh, to everybody, Eric. Hello. Uh, thanks, John, for hosting this, and uh, pleasure to be here. Great. Thanks a lot. So if Twitter does its thing, then you know who to direct the questions to. Um, hopefully, we're going to have a really stable space this evening. Um, first up, um, of, from our speakers that I'll introduce this evening, a person that uh, is very well known to Kenyans um, for the analysis that um, he and his institution have, have made over the years. Um, Mr. Kwame Owino, the CEO of uh, the Institute of Economic Affairs. 
Um, thanks a lot for joining us, uh, Kwame. I want to say a quick hello to everybody. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for this invite, and I'm glad to be here. Great. Thanks a lot, Kwame. Um, and second, um, a person who I've never met in, uh, you know, physically, but have um, watched quite a bit of on, on TV. Um, very well respected within the financial world. Uh, the CEO of Amana Capital, Mr. Reginald Kadzutu. Reginald, um, Salimia Watu, say hello to the people on the space this evening. Thank, thank you, John. And uh, Eric, um, glad to be here and hopefully we'll have a fruitful uh, discussion. Great. Thanks a lot, Reginald. Um, last and definitely not least, um, uh, the, the, the Executive Director of TISA, the Institute for Social Accountability, uh, uh, a lady whom I greatly respect, um, Ms. Wanjiro Gekonyo. I'm hoping that um, we'll be able to get her um, uh, to accept her as a speaker um, fairly soon as the conversation gets started. But we will start nonetheless. I'm sure we're going to get her online fairly soon. So, um, Kwame, then I'll start with you. Uh, broadly speaking, um, uh, or rather so that we can frame this discussion properly, what is the classical definition of kleptocracy? And, and once you've answered that, um, is Kenya a kleptocracy or is Kenya experiencing some, you know, some uh, symptoms of kleptocracy? Kwame. All right. Uh, thanks, Janana Namut, and thanks, Eric. Okay, well, I, I don't have a classical. You shouldn't take my definition as, as, um, as, as uh, definitive. <laughs> Sorry to, to use definition and definitive in the same sentence. But I think a kleptocracy is just basically a government in which uh, theft, especially theft of public resources and the use of political power or state power, whether through the bureaucracy, is used to amass uh, or to actually accumulate property that, was, that is otherwise unjustified. So basically, kleptocracy comes from across the Greek word to steal, and to steal in a brazen way. So asking about whether Kenya is a kleptocracy or not, I think the question answers itself. Um, it is. Uh, theft is widely accepted. And uh, well, let me just say, it's a culture of work in the public sector. And if there's one thing uh, you haven't asked me this that I'd like for us to, to understand is there's a belief that uh, a kleptocracy, or rather Kenyans think a kleptocracy is about, um, is about Kenyans, uh, or rather politician stealing. Actually, um, it's a bureaucracy itself that is, is organized in such a way that theft is systemic and everybody knows. So that when theft takes place, for instance, everybody gets their cut all the way from the uh, the accountants, for instance, all the way to um, some crumbs reaching the, the the smaller guy. So it's accepted that the pilferage of public money goods um, is part of the way that work gets done. And that's how the Kenyan public sector is. So yes, your answer is yes, we have a kleptocracy in place. And it didn't start yesterday. I think it's built its roots over time and it's fairly strong. All right. Thanks for that, uh, uh, Kwame. Um, Reginald, Look, you, you are looking, or, or perhaps you, you have um, um, a perspective on this that, that deals with um, people in the private sector, but also companies that, that work and, and, um, and, uh, and, and finance uh, various parts of the public sector. What to you is, um, or how complete, or how deep is Kenya's um, problem with 
kleptocracy or is Kenya's kleptocracy? Uh, thanks, John. I think it runs so deep uh, to the extent we we have songs about it. Um, I think there's a song for Inchia Kitu Kidogo. Um, you know, it becomes serious when it becomes normal. Um, yeah. it, it becomes so deep when everyone thinks that's the way it, it is. As in, it's it has become so normal, it's not news anymore. So when yeah, someone is told this amount of money, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we expected them to do that, which is very worrying, um, uh, so to speak. From from the private sector side, um, I'll, I'll give you an example. The, the, yeah. the, the cost of moving something between Mombasa and the Uganda border or to Rwanda. Uh, a study was done of the number of roadblocks between the port and to get out of Kenya. And you'll find businesses have to budget for the bribes they have to pay from the port itself, um, from clearing their goods, and throughout the whole process of traveling throughout um, the Kenyan space. Yeah. To, to, to the extent that the cost of doing business um, in Kenya especially if you're coming from outside, setting up a, a business here, you have to have planned for your khaki envelope. One, to get licenses, uh, to get contracts, to get, which, which inevitably makes the cost of doing business go so high. Apart from the other measures that you use, just that element of, the, you have to have to grease someone's hands to do something that they already paid to actually do. Um, it, it goes further down um, to even government services. Um, like what Kwame said, it's just not politicians. You want to get an ID, you want to get a passport, you want your passport to come out quickly. There, there's a wheeler, dealer, broker somewhere who can, who can tell you, one, I can get it to you faster, I can get your permit out faster, I can get your ID out faster it's become part of the culture, which is sad. So, so that's how deep it, it currently runs from the private side of um, the, the economy. Before I move back to Kwame, I, I just want to stay with you, Reginald, and, and ask a question that, that it bothers me, um, that looking at the problem of kleptocracy in this country, sometimes as a journalist, you feel like maybe we are too close to the problem. We... we we see it and therefore we're so jaded by it, we don't see Kenya in, in any other light. And then you'll see a World Bank um, report or, or a report by some, some um, you know, multinational institution um, that, that's looking at exactly that, the cost of doing business in Kenya, um, Kenya as a business destination or Kenya's prospects um, economically. And they tend to paint a fairly different picture than what we seem to be seeing. So is, is there something that we're not understanding about what it is or what perception that some of these institutions and some of these analyses carry that maybe we need to be seeing so that we have a, a more complete picture? Or, um, you know, have these institutions had the wool pulled over their eyes? 
no, no, not really. I don't think there's any wool pulled over their eyes. They actually know what they're doing. If if you look at the history of some of these institutions, um, the World Bank, IMF, um, and these development partners, um, just look at Angola, look at uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, now or when it was Zaire, and, and how they have fueled um, this culture of politicians becoming rich whilst in government. And you'll find most of these things happen, especially if you look at Zaire and, um, and the Democratic Republic of Congo and their history with uh, the IMF and the World Bank, uh, where money was actually paid, um, but ended up going to private accounts. Sometimes deals are made with private bankers um, and it's done outside uh, of um, um, outside of the country. So the money actually never reaches the country, um, ends up into private bank accounts. So, so when, whenever you look at um, reports from some of these institutions, it's always look at it from their perspective. What, what is their goal and what is their agenda? Um, I, I have my own view that most of these institutions literally like when they come to bail out African countries, they're not really bailing out the African country. They're actually bailing out the financial institutions from the West that have lent to the African countries. So you uh -huh. find if it's, if it's debt reduction and it was um, a Eurobond, Eurobond is not held by Kenyans. It's held by people, by multilateral banks and investment firms outside there. So when they come to bail you out, they're in essence bailing out their own capital markets. Uh, through you. So you end up with the debt um, and these guys end up uh, being sorted out. So whenever you see a report um, for, for, for like now, if IMF is to bring out a, a report on Kenya, um, they will definitely want to show progress because the Kenya is under a program, quote in quote. Um, so always look at the reports that come from these institutions from their perspective. What, 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 what are they trying to achieve? If they need Kenya to get money, uh, on the eurobond market if they want kenya to list another eurobond they're not going to issue a damning report on kenya they're going to issue a glowing report on kenya showing progress um showing that kenya has the ability to repay even if they know that um the, we do not actually have the ability to to repay um so there's normally that pinch of salt that you have to do when you look at um multilateral institutions when they give a report on a country all right, uh, I think John is having issues now. Uh, I'll take up with Kwame, uh, proceeding on the same question. Uh, uh, give us a little bit of a history of kind of the kleptocracy in the country. Uh, from your perspective and what you've observed over the years, and maybe you can give us a historical perspective of this. All right. Um, so let's start with the kleptocracy. As I said, um, my very basic definition is basically the use of state uh, institutions for enrichment. It's not only about politicians. In fact, if you ask me, I actually think that the amount of wealth that is lost to politicians is actually much less, except unless you're, you're speaking about people who sit at cabinet level, many of whom are not politicians. I actually think many cabinet secretaries, for instance, in Kenya, and their workers are richer than most politicians, but perhaps the deputy president and the president himself and a few other people. Um, so the, the, the reason this is systemic is one thing that uh, Reginald mentioned. So for instance, right now, you know that the government of Kenya decided that we have a new generation passport, which is all for the purposes of security. Uh, 
depending on who you'll speak to, you'll hear that the machines are broken. Um, so instead of producing 20,000 or so per, year, per day, uh, the production is much, much less. So obviously, because the production is much lower, what's happening is um, it's filled until August, depending on who you ask. Uh, I mean, this is based on somebody from my office who says that, look, if you get a date today, you'd make your payments, but it's August. Some other people will tell you June. But 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 the point is, there's a deliberate creation of, quote unquote, uh, um, some congestion or the appearance of it, regardless of what the minister said. And obviously, um, Cabinet Secretary Matiangi went there and gave the assurances last year that we're going to clear this. But whatever happens, that benefits a lot of people. And the 100, I mean, the 10,000, 20,000 and 30,000 that people do to turn those things around in two days or three days is what generates that. Um, and that income level and its distribution is much higher. So what is the history? Let's start with the fact that, look, let's start with the independence. Independ Before independence, the governments that we had, which were mostly the, the I mean, the colonial government, as we call it, um, had its own problems with, uh, with, uh, with generating, um, with generating, or rather had corruption as well, because some people had power, but it wasn't perverse. Uh, I think if you read Kenya's history, there are quite a number of people who are caught. Um, I mean, by this I say, for lack of a better word, the colonial administrators who were white, who were also caught, who were found to have been corrupt, one pilfering cash here or there, but it wasn't perverse. Um, when independence came about, it all started with the distribution of land that needed to be distributed. And at that time, because the state money and procurement had not become an issue, the presidency or cabinet secretaries or people in their cabinet secretaries, their relatives, mostly benefited from land redistribution, whether acquired through state, the state paying for it, and then distributed to specific families. You read memoirs of people who are in Kenyatta's cabinet who are his advisors who say very, very directly that they asked us to take this and to take the other. They say it. Um, they are some of the richest men in Kenya today. They are embarrassed about it, but they say it. So that's the first part. So part of that was just basically a new administration coming in. They're in control of resources. The main resource was land. That redistribution provided an advantage. So kleptocracy comes from the fact that there's an opportunity to manage state resources, and then people take those opportunities, manipulate the laws, or manipulate this policy to benefit themselves. I think the second phase of it came up with what people call the Ndegwa Commission, which was a commission that went about. Public sector workers were not allowed to run businesses. But then this commission sat and went round, came up with a report, and the report said that public sector workers should be allowed because they were the most educated at that time. They therefore were able to separate and actually run businesses on the same side. So many of the people who were there then cornered for themselves opportunities to work with multinationals and all those other people because they became the representatives, they got the distribution contracts for the biggest ones in Kenya, those things persist until today. So in some cases, it involves starting in the private sector, I mean, public sector, and then skipping to the private sector as opportunities become more available. So historically, that's basically it. As we come towards the 90s and the distribution of, uh, I mean, in the 1920, I mean, uh, sorry, 1990s when multi-party was, affairs resumed, I mean, multi-party government constitutional dispensation um, opened up for multi-party politics, there was no more land, quote unquote, to redistribute. So they went full scale into creating procurement contracts. And so the third phase of it, which has lasted for as long as is, is to expand the state 
use whether it's political platforms to justify why we should have whether it's free education we should have government to do this and government do that and kenyans swallow it because kenyans like government for that reason for that reason they find an opportunity to expand to use government opportunity uh, or the fact that we like things to establish all manner of parastatals here all manner of public sector institutions and then those become conduits for expanding public money and then of course the kleptocracy continues. So I think historically, in my view, my rough cut is basically pre-independence, well, to serious. At independence, it started with land specifically, of course, a few government things and the patronage. The third part was rewarding political people. When the, all the land had been distributed, the people became more vigilant about land. Then it went into distributing uh, procurement. And procurement phase is actually where we are now. And it's a suggestion of the of the state. So we have all those things that people call allowances and everything else that exists in the states, uh, in the state. And its manifestation, as I conclude, is in the sense that sometimes even courts become a joke in Kenya. So for instance, you all know about the number of times that, let me start with this. I work at the Institute of Economic Affairs and I, I work according to a contract, which means um, those I work with, I mean, those I report to could decide to redeploy me or they could decide to extend my work hours one way or the other. So it's very fishy when you see people suing government in Kenya, especially if they're in the infrastructure ministries and all those other places. A person sues government by rejecting a posting away from Nairobi or some other place. And a court allows it. When you think that service should be provided to Kenyans irrespective of where they are. So those same people who are suing government are then being investigated by the ESCC and you find out that this person has a salary of a given amount of money, decent by Kenyan standards, so, but they have property worth billions of shillings and they're not a politician. So there's an embedded in the public sector, a middle cadre of people and many of us concentrate on politicians because they're hate, I mean, they're easy to hate. But if you ask me, kleptocracy in Kenya is a question of the middle manager in the public sector. Um, now that's not to excuse the politicians, but let me end with this. When, when, when Eastern Europe, was quote unquote liberated or rather after the war, wall came down because 91, 92 when the Soviet Union collapsed. You know Václav Havel, who was the first guy who was the president after that after the wall came down, the Czech Republic, when the, when the split took place. He had a problem because he met a couple of public sector workers. And when he challenged them, he realized that many of them were actually telling him, look, if you, try, if you work too hard on us, we're going to make your state collapse. And he writes in his book, in his biography, that he faced two options either to let the state go on as it was, which was the corruption under socialist governments, or to accept a temporary uh, dysfunction, which these people were promising. Uh, he chose the final one. I mean, he chose the second option, which is temporary dysfunction. So I'll conclude by saying that two weeks ago, all Kenyans were wondering what was happening within our power cuts and everything else. Just after the government, whether it was well intended or really meant or not is a different matter. Just after government started to investigate um, procurement and the technicians working at the Kenya Power and Lighting Company regarding specific contracts that were not available. I don't think that is a coincidence. And the reason kleptocracy is embedded in Kenya is because it is very difficult for politicians and especially the ruling class. I hate the word ruling class. Uh, let me just say the rulers, for instance, for the president to actually convince Kenyans that I want to get rid of corruption. And part of getting rid of kleptocracy means 
you must allow me the space that when I get rid of these people, there are very many of them, they're not too many, probably 10,000 people in the public sector, they're so embedded in corruption and kleptocracy, there'll be dysfunction. They can create state dysfunction. You know, they'll run away with files. You remember once when KPLC also had a problem where certain files were suddenly not were missing, contracts are not available and all that. So for as long as a society has no confidence in its leadership, for the leader to take such difficult things, kleptocracy endures. And of course, as taxpayers, you and I pay the price. Thanks. If you can hear me, Eric is having some, we're having some technical challenges. Uh, both John and Eric are currently down. We're trying to get them back. I, I guess as we, as we wait for them, I can also just, just weigh in on what Kwame was um, uh, talking about. The, the, the other problem that makes um, kleptocracy get embedded in a country is when institutions start to fail, um, whether by design or just generally the structure of the institutions uh, have not been structured in a way that they actually um, would work. So if you were to look at Kenya at, 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 at present, um, or even if you, if you go back um, historically, where you have that the main institution, um, which sets the tone for the rest of the institutions, which is normally parliament, is so, um, I don't know whether we call it toothless or so corruptible, um, you realize everything else begins to, to fall into pieces, um, so, so to speak. And when it comes into Kenya, sometimes I wonder whether it's by design or that parliament actually does not know its role. Um, we have gone through uh, periods where members of parliament were judged based on uh, the roads they've built in, in their constituents or the toilets or that one classroom block here or there um, through CDF and, 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 and other stuff like that. And you'll find as Kenyans, we start judging the performance of um, the member of parliament based on the roads in his constituency um, and not him setting up the laws that make sure that there are roads that are built in every constituency. Obviously, there's, there's a leaning on your own constituency uh, because then your, your constituents are supposed to see that you're representing them, um, representing them well. So when you have a, a parliament that fails in its primary responsibility of legislating in a way Hi Fox, looks like we lost uh, Reginald as well. Um, okay. Well, Eric's asked me to go ahead until he's back. So let me, let me, let me try and add my two cents worth here. Uh, so yes, I, I think that kleptocracy in Kenya is, is, 
it's really, really, I mean, we, it's, it's to flog a dead horse to say that kleptocracy, whether it exists, that's a fact. Uh, how extensive it is, it's a fact. Part of the reason Kenyans have a, don't have a tractable view about this thing, or rather why we don't find it tractable that the policies, we don't know how to make it work, is it's, it's not one thing. Um, I think the greatest risk to state stability in Kenya, in my view, coming from kleptocracy is actually middle-level managers. They are so embedded, many of them have been in the place where they are, and even if they move, they tend to keep the same places, and they're responsible for managing budgets and state resources. So we have the odd policeman here and there who takes 200, 400, sometimes as much from you and he's an extortionist and everything else, but that's fine. But part of the reason that guy thinks he needs to get away with that, because he knows his boss takes lots of money. So if you see some of the sad cases that we've had in 2007 and eight, and what that showed about Kenya's police force is that people who sit at the top have something like 3 million every year. I mean, every week, somebody claims I use this to find evidence. I mean, to find um, uh, intelligence on keeping the state or keeping Nairobi safe. And that money is just simply filtered around and spent as, as he or she wishes. Uh, that money is not accounted for. On the other side, we have uh, the public sector, or rather the parliament, which has been beaten down to believe that if they're given the small slice of two and a half percent of of uh, CDF, then they will look aside and let all the other things go. So we have been on public public platforms with members of parliament. And when you ask them why they won't stop some of these dysfunction, they say, but it's government. And they say government when they mean the executive. It's government that has programs. Our work is just to oversight without necessarily asking, look, these guys tell you themselves, the president himself tells you that we lose 2 billion shillings per year, I mean, per day in, 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 um, in, um, in corruption. He says it. The president says he's on record and he's never withdrawn that point. So why don't you cut the budget by 700 billion and tell him, look, <laughs> let's, let's rob the thieves of these 2 billion per day. They won't do it. So I, I think, uh, I don't know whether they need a civics lesson. Uh, and I say this respectfully, I don't know whether they need a civics lesson or not. But just, we have such a, a long period of dominance, especially the charisma that started with the first president of Kenya, President Moi, and we tend to elect charismatic people. We therefore believe that their interpretation of what the role of the executive and the presidency is, is what it is. So this dysfunction actually, as Reginald says, requires a parliament that's ready to assert itself, regardless of political coalitions and everything else. And they sometimes do assert themselves when their salaries are on the line, but they don't do that enough to actually say that we believe. So we still believe that in the constitutional architecture in Kenya, there's a hierarchy of, of arms of government with the executive coming first and perhaps second coming parliament and the, the judiciary is supposed to play its own uh, stepchild role being on the side, not getting into everybody's hair um, here and there. So I guess that's part of it. But if Reginald is back, maybe I should allow him to complete his point. Reginald, are you back? Okay. Hi, uh, uh, Kwame, Kwame, can you hear me? Yes, I can. All yes. right. Yeah. 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 I'm back. So, so you can carry on, carry on with, um, with, with your answer. No, I mean, I, I've just finished. I was just trying to fill up because there's nobody. I was just saying that the history spoke about the history and I talk about the dysfunction. And, uh, and I think nobody is willing to accept part of the dysfunction in the public sector. And by suggesting that there's, Democracy in the public sector, in every arm of government. I'm not just talking about more money is certainly available in the in the executive because the executive spends almost eighty percent of eighty percent of every hundred dollars collected. So that's that's where thieves go to, right? 
thieves go to banks because that's where the cash is. Um, but we have kleptocracy in the judiciary. We have kleptocracy in parliament as well, believe it or not. I mean, there are officers there who lead amazing lifestyles. They're probably entitled to it, but not by stealing public money. So that's what I was just, that's a fine point I was spinning in it. Thanks. Okay. Um, Kwame, uh, as Reginald is coming back and we're trying to get one zero, um, are we too far gone? Because if kleptocracy is entrenched in every arm of government, are we too far gone? Is this a lost cause? Well, because <laughs> uh, because I'm a Kenyan and I, and I and I pay my tax taxes, I hope dutifully. I mean, dutifully, certainly, because my employer makes sure that before I receive my pay, it's gone. Uh, I don't want to believe we are too far gone. I just think that we Kenyans have the idea that we think that fixing corruption is about electing our bishop, right? Or the biggest monk that we can find in Kenya. You know, the holiest looking man who can chant mantras and solve this thing for us or say the best prayers. When we don't understand that actually the problem is on politicians. Politicians are just fitting in <laughs> to make sure that they get their own pipe. Uh, so it's like this. Many people consider public resources as a beehive. So everybody simply comes with their pipes. So the politicians fit their pipes, the executive guys fit their pipes, and everybody fits their pipes and suck out the, the honey. I mean, I'm sorry to use a very um, uh, pedestrian uh, example, but that's, that's basically what it is. So I don't think we are too far gone. In fact, one of the things that I think, I think, I think, I mean, I'd be prepared to actually bet my even 10 years wage on this that if we found a government that was completely interested in wiping out uh, half or the entire cadre of people who manage public procurement in Kenya to start with, in all parts of government, um, you can substantially reduce this, this stuff. They wouldn't, of course, these guys would cause a lot of, uh, as I said, sabotage and dysfunction and everything else. But I think the people who are gone are these people who sit in the public sector in Kenya. So, I mean, people who manage, especially the, because I think procurement is the bigger side, uh, because it's the demand side. Government of Kenya spends 31 out of every 100 shillings produced in gross domestic product. That's where you go to, to supply bad roads, but still pay, get paid on time to supply stuff like that. So it's very easy money to make relative to, as compared to going on. So we are not all far gone. I think the only compact we don't need, and here I don't have much confidence in the public as well, the only I say that respect to the only compact we need is to say, and it's not about getting somebody from the army either, because even the military forces we know about the purchase of, of equipment is also itself prone to this. The only thing we need is somebody who will accept that, look, part of reforming the state is actually building the state to provide services as if we are building it afresh. We blame the colonial state. I disagree with that idea that people are corrupt or brutal in Kenya because the colonial state was. We have people who know very, very well. Uh, directorships in parastatals, for instance, wow, you know them, right? They sit in directorships for parastatals for two months, and then suddenly they're counting dollars on their floor in their living rooms as we are watching. So the, the, the point would be, I don't think it's a generational thing, but obviously it will have to be a generational one because right now 80% of our population um, is younger than 33, uh, sorry, younger than 43, um, so that makes it their problem to solve. But I think we, you can never say that a state is fully gone. What I know can happen is permanent stagnation can happen. I mean, we have these countries such as Haiti and a few other countries that have been here for a very, very long time. We might blame the voodoo 
practices, we might say it's France, but the truth is they have a dysfunctional system and dysfunction can also be a very stable equilibrium for several generations. So we could stay at this level of stagnation for forever. If however something small happens, you could also tip over and become a, you know, the dysfunctional states in Africa, Congo, South Sudan, for instance, and all those other things. So it doesn't necessarily, you see Kenyans tend to be more fearful of conflict, whether caused by political or other cases. But the point is, my view is that the function of government in Kenya is so badly distorted in my view that if you abolished government, I say this without being flippant, Kenyans' lives would actually be better. Half of government actually could go away tomorrow and none of us would realize it. And if that means we get back our tax cuts by, I mean, our tax taxes by half, I'd be happier for it. So to answer it by a long way is, no, I don't think we are too far gone. I just think that the conversation that is required to actually fix it, um, accepting has gone the sunk costs. Uh, is difficult for people to share, to, I mean, to, 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 to pause and actually to discuss because it might, it might look like, oh, but we are forgiving people who stole money 20 years ago uh, and stuff like that. Maybe we need a clean slate. Uh, that's very, very difficult politically to achieve because almost everybody who would say that as a politician has benefited in one, one way or the other from kleptocracy. Okay. Um, Reginald, I'm coming back to you on this. Um, same question, but ask kind of, kind of differently. Um, the allegation that, well, there's an opinion that's held that, um, you know, you kill, the, you, 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 you try and kill corruption, you will kill the patient, right? The, the whole cancer analogy. Um, what does that look like from a private sector side? Uh, do you agree with Kwame that, you know, if, if government, if half of government disappeared, then, you know, the private sector would function as normal? Um, or perhaps even better than normal, what would the impact be of like a full-scale war on kleptocracy, looking at it from a private sector point of view? Uh, thanks, John. Um, I, I, I'll bring it to, on, from, from this angle, uh, coming from the, the last point I was, I was speaking about before I, I, I dropped off. You, you cannot deal with an institutional problem by piecemeal um, one pronouncement or, or, or yeah yeah by piecemeal pronouncement so 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 kleptocracy is an institutional problem it didn't start as an institutional problem but over the years the history given by um, by Kwame it became institutionalized so it's it's there in the system um, of, of how things are done. Um, as you as said, middle-level uh, managers, um, procurement managers, um, they do it through the system. The same way people steal money um, in the government, it's budgeted corruption. So, yeah, we want to build this road. Uh, it costs $1 billion, we'll budget for $4 billion. So when that money is disbursed from the consolidated fund, it was approved in Parliament. Four billion was approved, and it has actually been paid out. Um, but yes, uh, which brings you back to the issues like the dam, the water dam, and all those other things. They were things that were budgeted for in the budget, so it was easy for that money to move without raising any red flags. So it is an institutional problem that needs to be dealt with from an institutional perspective. We can go Singapore way and say if you are caught in corruption. Uh, you'll be shot and you'll be killed, uh, firing squad and all those other things. Um, and, and they will uh, make some impact to some way. 
But if they, they do not deal uh, with the institutional problem that we have, um, you will find we'll have politicians who enter parliament or enter positions either into parliament or into government, and they have nothing. But after two, three years, the guys are super rich. Yeah. And you can't really trace where did they steal money because there's nothing that is showing that they've stolen money, but they've managed to use the institutional weaknesses that are there and they've actually enriched themselves. So they've either given business to their own companies, um, they've used their positions in, in, in power to get contracts um, from shell companies, get contracts, get tenders. Uh, I know we have a, a situation where we had a member of parliament who got um, a, a, a deal. Uh, they did do the service, but the, the fact that is, if you were maybe not a member of parliament and if you were maybe not a CS or a PS or something, would you have gotten the same deal? Or would it have gotten to someone who was most probably would have done it cheaper, faster, better, uh, and, and more efficient? So when you look at the private sector side of it, and, and unfortunately, if, if you look at the majority of the private sector, which you will be looking at is the formal side, um, which only constitutes close to 15 to 20% of the, the, the economy um, in, terms of, 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 in terms of size. And you find most of the businesses that side have grown because of political patronage. Yeah. Um, if, if you look at some of the institutions and you think, if, if this business did not have political connections, will it have reached the way it has grown or, or reached the way it has been able to reach? Um, then you realize it may not actually be the case. So if we do deal with this from an institutional perspective, again, going back to, um, to a weak parliament that is supposed to actually be creating legislation that institutionalizes things, um, if we deal with it from the institutional angle and perspective, you will then realize when you start leveling the playing field for the private sector, as in everyone in the private sector, uh, one, to be able either to go for government tenders, um, but the way we don't pay, it's, it's business at your own risk. Um, but you open up or level up the space that you, John, um, Eric, anyone I'm seeing, a Mauricia, Martin, uh, Liban, Ronnie, can start a business and be actually able to grow their business without having the cost of either everything to oil um, a politician, um, pay a bribe to a service that your taxes are already paying um, paying for. So if you are going to go to an all-out um, attack on kleptocracy, yeah, uh, where fraud, bribery, corruption, uh, abuse of power is all encompassed in, 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 in that statement, you realize we'll have to deal with it from an institutional um, angle. Um, and unfortunately, uh, judiciary cannot fight this fight by itself um, because the judiciary is part of the quantum of the institutions, uh, but it is not at the center of where these things are supposed to be actually done. And that's where you find sometimes there are cases of uh, a judge was bribed. Uh, these cases will always go this direction because the judiciary is compromised and all that stuff. Um, 
why and i'll keep on taking it back because of the failure of the main institution that actually represents people uh which is parliament and in our case senate so if we are going to deal with uh kleptocracy in kenya um and and i like the way you've used kleptocracy instead of just focusing on corruption because corruption is part of cryptocurrency, uh, but now there's also elements of abuse of power, uh, fraud, bribery, and all those things. So if we're going to deal with it, we have to make sure that we strengthen the institutions. Um, and the only way you strengthen in institutions is through legislation. Yeah, Because through legislation, then you give the courts power. Uh, to be able to, one, defend private property rights, defend... Um, issue out judgments against corruption uh, and all these other things. But if we go out and say, if your court will deal with you, or what we've been trying to do in Kenya is in catch the big fish and punish them, um, they always find loopholes of getting out because it's an institutional um, problem. So what we've been trying to do in Kenya for a while is, um, I like this analogy that was given, if you have crime in your neighborhood and you build up um, a brick wall or a perimeter wall and you put up an electric gate and electric wires and fences around um, your your house. You've, what you've done is what creating what you call a private solution to a public problem. Because these thugs will catch you before you enter your house. Yeah? Or they'll be waiting for you outside your gate. Yeah? So you'll find that's what we've been trying to do in Kenya, even from a private sector creating private solutions, you know, private solutions, either uh, moving our bases to Mauritius, um, lobbying um, members of parliament, doing this. So each institution is trying to create their own private solutions to a public problem. Um, and, and we have to really look at it from an institutional perspective. Um, Reginald, before I, before I go back to Kwame, um, let me use another you know, analogy. You've used private solutions to public problems. I'll use the analogy of, of the frog in boiling water, right? Um, there's, there's this contention that if the, if the private sector feels the pinch, you know, painfully enough, then it will force some change. But that um, the, the, the progression in terms of how things are starting to co uh, collapse is, is sort of like a slow burn, and therefore people keep on investing good money after a bad institution. Do you, do you think that's true? Or do you think that, you know, the, the private sector really is at the point now where it cannot take any more? And, and, and I preface this with, uh, with, with a discussion on debt and what needs to, to happen for us to be able to get out of the debt situation that we're in. Um, let, let me start with the debt, then I move, move, move to, to the others. Any politician who's not talking about dealing with debt come 2022, um, I don't know what miracles they're going to do to implement any of the things that they are talking about. Um, because right now, 70 to 75% of every 100 shillings that um, KRA uh, collects goes to paying debt. Yeah, um, and, and the problem we have is, is generally not a revenue problem. Um, and, and right now it's not even an expenditure problem. Uh, right now it's literally just a debt problem. Because even if we do not borrow anything else come next year, uh, the dynamics are not going to change in terms of what we are, we, are, we have to uh, repay when it comes, uh, comes to debt. Uh, the few politicians that have mentioned debt have actually not mentioned how. 
because then you cannot mention debt in the same uh, sentence as we will you know, build this, we will give this, because then you end up in the same situation the current government is in, where you, one side of your mouth, you are talking about uh, consolidation, and other side of your mouth, you are issuing supplementary budgets uh, of 126 billion. And of that 126 billion, uh, 90% of it is going to recurrent expenditure, nothing to development. I, I wait for the day we issue supplementary budgets for development projects than um, that. The way we'll get out of our debt problem uh, has to take one uh, serious person who's willing to stand up for Kenya and Kenyans in terms of in, in, in government. Um, when a creditor gives you debt and they charge you an interest, what they are saying is that uh, there is risk in giving debt to you. So every creditor knows that there is risk of lending to a country. Yeah. And all these guys who have given money to Kenya, you know that they are dumb or stupid. They know the condition of our finances. They know the state of our revenue, um, that we're not able to uh, to repay most of this debt. Um, so a creditor also has the risk that they take. Why should the taxpayer bear this risk by themselves? By seeing taxes being increased and all these things coming up so that we're able to pay debt. But yet the guy who lent uh, has a responsibility. Yeah, uh, what am I driving at? Um, I, I know my theory on this is very harsh. Um, Kwame will distance himself away from uh, me because of this. Uh, but truth be said, in international law, there's something called odious debt, where a new regime comes in and says, "Guys, you lent the previous regime money. Uh, that money we cannot pinpoint what it has done um, for the benefit of the people." Uh, that money, we cannot see what has happened to it. So either we are not going to pay or you come on the table and we renegotiate. Yeah? Sit down with uh, the lenders and tell them uh, if this was something for seven years, we can only pay it back in 21 years. If it was for 7%, we can only pay back at 3.5%. You either take that or lose your money. We will not be the first country that is defaulted. Um, yeah, we will not be the first country that is de defaulted, and and the fear that people say, oh, if you default, then you're locked out of these institutions. Uh, sometimes we need to ask ourselves, do we actually need uh, these institutions? Because they fuel a lot of debt. Uh, but rarely have I seen any IMF program or World Bank program that is actually led to economic growth in in any country that they have helped. Um. Coming to the, the element of putting in money, chasing bad money or the, 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 the state of, of the economy. The, the, truth be said, our economy has been in tatters for quite a while. The structure of our economy is not um, structured in a way that benefits everyone. And please note, I'm not bottoms up. Um, but it's not structured in a way that... Uh, so I'll give an example. I'll give the example of our capital markets and, and um, in, in, in the country. You have capital markets that are designed to operate like capital markets in the West and serve big companies. But you are in an economy that has 80% small to medium enterprises and the few big ones that are there are family-run businesses. The reason why you've not gotten any listing on the Nairobi Stock Exchange for the last whatever, since after, I don't know what came after Safaricom, but since after the last listing, which has been quite a while, is because the, the, the capital markets are not structured 
for the, um, the, 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 the fabric of the economy, which is the small to medium enterprises. Yeah. How does uh, a person running their small organization um, or their small manufacturing plant get access to long-term patient capital, which is what the capital markets are supposed to be able to do? And then you move forward and you say, why do we have ambassadors strutted all over this uh, globe and we are not at war with anyone? Um, so definitely their role then has to be, as an ambassador, how do I make room or how do I negotiate trade deals? How do I open the door, not for your big capitalist, but for your SME to be able to export to Uganda, to be able to export to whatever. So you realize we have a distribution network of ambassadors, but if we are to check their job descriptions or to check their performance, how many of them have actually opened doors um, for the organizations that are in the economy, the structure of the, the SMEs that are in, are in the economy? Um, kleptocracy has also led to uh, the economy not doing well because every time the government tries to um, spend more uh, and the fiscal multipliers, they are trying to trigger uh, for there to be growth either in demand um, and all, you'll see them do not work, um, have not worked. Why? Because the money is either siphoned out, uh, the money doesn't end up going to where it's supposed to be, or it is going to the few organizations that are already there, um, already making money so it's money chasing after capitalists so so even when you hear politicians saying that no we want to um take money to the bottom and grow up people from um from the bottom then you hear what they plan on doing and you realize uh we are actually giving money back to the person who already has capital because the the, the problem um uh, john and 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 eric that that we have as as, as a country. Number one is failure to identify what the, our problems are when it comes to the economy. Kenya is a serious income problem. Yeah. And Kenya is a rural poverty problem. And why do I mention those two? Is because majority of the people in this country stay in rural areas. 70% of them stay in rural areas and are uh, employed in the rural areas. But then we have a huge rural poverty problem. So you're not going to uplift people from poverty by building a road in Nairobi. Uh, you're not going to uplift people from poverty by building uh, a railway somewhere. Yeah? You're going to uplift people from poverty when you start looking at the rural economy and how you create upward mobility, either one, from the rural economy to the urban economy, or how do you urbanize the rural areas by bringing industries down there, the way devolution now comes in. Um, and our income problem in Kenya is that People, yes, are getting jobs, um, but if you look at what the worker earns, the worker only earns a wage and a salary. If you look at the growth, the real growth in terms of wages and salaries in the country, for the last 10, 12 years, it has actually been negative. But then if you look at the growth of income earned by people who own capital, who own land, who own uh, buildings, has been increasing um, astronomically. Uh, so to speak, which is your capital gains, your dividends, and all. So if we are to sort out the, the Kenyan uh, problem in terms of uplifting people from poverty, because that's the whole point of uh, government trying to grow an economy, is to uplift their people from poverty. We have to, one, start creating quality jobs that start seeing our average income 
uh, real income increasing, not nominal income, real income actually uh, increasing. Because it is a worry when you look at a country like Kenya and 69 to 70% of the people are still using pit latrines. Um, 65 or so percent of the people don't have access to piped water. Um, then you start wondering, so what are our priorities? What, what have we been doing for the last 50-something years uh, that we've been independent? When you realize that the people that earn uh, more than 100,000 are not more than 2% of the 2 million people that are in the formal sector. So you realize if we don't come up with then strategies, and when we look at the private sector, we need to stop looking at your Coca-Cola's, your Safari Coms and stuff like that. We need to go a step lower and say, how do we get this guy who's making soap to be able to scale, uh, one, by creating demand for him locally, but also giving him access to demand outside. Um, Kenya is a very small economy. Um, if you look at the people that, and Kwame said it, majority of the people, close to uh, uh, 40-50%, 40% of the population is below the age of 23. Yeah, So these people are not earning anything. So if you look at the people that actually have demand for something, uh, it's a very small group of people. So if everyone focuses on the domestic market, you'll find, you'll find there is no purchasing power, uh, so to speak. So if you are starting a business without access to the region, um, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda, you remain a kiosk uh, or you won't be actually be able to scale. So uh, I think that's, that's, that's my, my thoughts on one, how to deal with the debt. Any government that is going to come, there is no way of dealing with this debt unless you literally restructure it. Uh, if you're not restructuring it, can't pay, won't pay. Yeah. Um, when it comes to uplifting people from poverty from the private sector side, we need to redefine private sector to move away from your Coca-Cola, Safaricom and go a step lower and say, how do we grow the SMEs? How do we get the SMEs to be able to get long term patient capital skills that they need? and access to markets um, and stop operating in silos. But the problem that we have, we have a lot of silo mentality where some people come and say, no, we are doing capacity building. So you give this guy capacity with no money. He is now an educated guy without capacity. Some say we will come and give you money. And, and these multilateral institutions keep on giving money to equity, COP, KCB for onward lending to SMEs. And it won't work because that money enters equity bank. It will only come out of there as a commercial loan. And this guy doesn't need the commercial loan. He needs a long-term patient capital. Um, and that's where we go back to institutions. What happened to uh, ICDC, which is supposed to be doing that? What happened to African Development Corporation, which is supposed to be mechanized in the agricultural sector? Uh, what happened to AFC, Agricultural Finance Institution, which is supposed to be giving short-term uh, loans? And, and that institution actually needs to be looked at. If you notice, uh, whenever a president is running for re-election, the loans from that institution are normally all wiped out uh, as a campaign promise of that where people have been forgiven. But if then you go to their books, I'm sure if you go to their books, I might be wrong, um, but if you go to their books, you realize most of the people that have these loans are actually people connected politically, uh, members of parliament, uh, ministers, CSEs, and stuff like that. And that's how they can afford to buy large tracts of land because they are borrowing taxpayers' money through AFC, lobby the president to forgive those debts. When it comes to an election, the guy now owns a ranch of 150 uh, acres. Um, there's no corruption because he got a loan, the loan was forgiven. And that's that's the typical example of cryptocurrency, uh, cryptocurrency in, 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 in the country. John.
All right. Thanks a lot, Reginald. Really, really interesting. I mean, you've, you've raised a lot of things that I've been thinking about. And, and Kwame, I want to come um, to you. But before I do, um, people who are on the, on, the, on, on the space this evening, if you want to um, ask questions, we're, not going, we're now going to be taking questions. So, so you can just send your questions to the pinned tweets either on the Africa Uncensored or Mwango Capital handle. And I'll read some of those and, and answer them. And hopefully we'll also get some, some, uh, some time for people to make their the comments. Now, Kwame, um, Zimbabwean journalist Hopewell Chinono today uh, tweeted a picture of Kenya's um, uh, famous slash infamous expressway and, you know, um, talked about the comparison between Zimbabwe and Kenya over a number of years. That Zim Kenya was Zimbabwe's poor, poorer cousin once upon a time. And now, you know, we're five times bigger. But I want to ask it from the point of view of Kenya's competitiveness in East Africa. For the, for the longest, um, we've seen ourselves as the big boy and the player in this, the big player in this region. Would it take um, our own nakedness um, against the, the, the profit and, and the growth of uh, Tanzania's Well, it looks like we lost John again, right? Yeah, seems uh, like we lost him. Uh, but I think like we get the gist of the question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. yeah. Reginald, uh, maybe Okwame. Uh, Okwame, take, take it up uh, since you're speaking already. All right. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I worry a lot about how... Uh, let's start with Zimbabwe and then we'll come back to... Uh, we'll come back to, to Kenya. You and Tanzania, but I worry about the. I mean, Zimbabwe's example tells us something about what some of what we have to be careful about, and some of the things that have been stated. So Zimbabwe is a question. Zimbabwe is a perfect example about how the stubbornness of a president wearing quote unquote uh, ethnic, or oh, sorry, um, economic nationalism. Uh, and racism as a part of it decided that look he'd run the country badly he wanted to 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 undermine the opposition and therefore took a populist um, approach which was basically to redistribute land land redistribution on its own is not necessarily a problem but the way he decided to distribute it very very cynically and sent other people away from land gave that land to to veterans some of whom were also supporters of the political party to which uh, the president was, uh, and the result is what it is. So Zimbabwe has lost about a quarter of a century since 2000 when this thing started, thereabouts, uh, based on bad policies, just a bad uh, policies um, flying on the wings of economic nationalism. Um, now, it sells for a while, but we can see those results. At one point, Zimbabwe had a note on which quadrillion and whatever. So I like that because that Zimbabwe note is important. When I was teaching some students law and economics, I used to put it up there and show how the connection between law and economics goes. Um, so five times bigger, I need to look at the figures to confirm, but yes, Zimbabwe lost a complete generation, complete generation of the possibility of growth and development based on that. But the point it teaches me here, there's kleptocracy as well, because Mugabe, his kids lived in very lavish lifestyles. His wife, Feragamo shoes, I mean, she's perfectly entitled to it if she can work. Uh, whether she, it's clear she wasn't working, he had fantastic um, access to state resources while people suffered. So that's, that's it as well. So 
and I'm saying what this the lesson this tells me is that when you have kleptocracy, which is very common in many African places, um, kleptocracy is a form of economic policy, which is that you allow people with access to the state or people who want to get into the state, especially at bureaucratic level or at political level, just so they can hold their pipe to the beehive, uh, use the state to use corrupt policy, um, decide on licensing, and then keep that money and stuff like that. Now, you know you can have kleptocracy, and in my view, the 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 the, the Zimbabwean guy could have spoken to us because we have to stop believing that development is physical infrastructure and buildings. Because if you look at it, one of the most embarrassing things about Kenya, uh, Reginald mentioned a part of it, is that 30% of Kenyans, close to 16 million Kenyans, right, are undernourished. Malnutrition. And you can tell as well for all the things that we can talk about, we have all these skyscrapers and a fancy train and now uh, um, um, an expressway from the airport to what part of Nairobi. One of the things that this tells you is that the major way of assessing how our country is doing with regard to public affairs is just to ask ourselves what share of the public money of a household's money is used to buy food. And in Kenya, it's 44. So 44% of the incomes that households in Kenyans buy, I mean, have every year, is just used to buy food. What that means is, if you if you assume that 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 uh, that that an income level that I mean that rather that income is distributed evenly, it means your average Kenyan works up to and until May, I think the 18th or thereabouts, no May the 12th, May the 8th, just to feed themselves for the whole year. Then the rest of the time, that's when they're working for their clothes, they're working for every other thing and all that. It's a sad story. The Kenyan story is a sad story, guys. The African story is a sad story. This is 60 years after independence. It's, I mean, Zimbabwean independence, of course, is a little younger, but it's almost 40 years too now. But it's a sad story. Um, so what I'm trying to let us know is that these physical things might be um, the ways in which we had we hide the burden of our shame. Um, so that's that's the fancy that's a fancy part, which in itself using skyscrapers to show off how development against the other is in itself a reflection of what our minds are. That to build a skyscraper is necessarily to mean that this country is doing better than the other. Often not, because the skyscrapers and the expressway in Kenya is also itself an expression of kleptocracy. And we followed this at the Institute of Economic Affairs. So let me plug here. When the first assessment, even assuming that the, the expressway should be built, when the first assessment was done, the bill of quantities and the costing, the expressway was supposed to cost 16 billion Kenya shillings. 16. Then it was revised to 21. Then it was expanded. Right now, the length has not changed. The quantity of materials has not changed. Of course, a few adjustments have been made here and there, right? The, ra the last bill is 78 billion. All the rest of that is cream for people to take out. So in my view, while a Zimbabwean thinks that the expressway is a reflection, it's actually a reflection of how much you and I as a Kenyan taxpayer have been abused and fleeced because we're going to pay for that regardless. Um, so I'm very cautious about that. So that's the first. Talking about Zimbabwe, I mean, um, Tanzania, look, as, as I work at a think tank, and one of the things I labor to teach Kenyans, because part of our work is public education, development is not an arms race. Tanzania doing well does not harm Kenya in any way. It doesn't. 
in fact, when your neighbors do well, the possibility of percolation, the peer effect and the possibility of percolation of that prosperity is something we should enjoy. So Kenyans have to stop believing that we should sit on top of the pile and we are the tallest child among stunted children who are completely, um, and perhaps even have no clothes, but we are the taller child and we have the dirtier shirt and no pants, but because our neighbor has both those and is without shoes, then we talk about ourselves. The African story is a sad story. And Africa, to be honest, needs to do much better. And kleptocracy is central to this solution. It's central to the problem because that's what. John asked me a question on the side about comparisons on kleptocracy. Let me do that quickly before I hand over. Now, the kleptocracy in Kenya, or, or rather to give examples. So about six years ago, seven years ago, Forbes started to release um, figures about who the richest people in Kenya were. I mean, rather in, in Africa were. And if you look at that, then they split it by the richest people in every country, and then they split it by the richest men and women, and then they split it by who are the richest under 40 and above. In each of those cases, but I'll mention this, not for any reason, so you, I must be forgiven, on top of the African list was <laughs> De Santos's daughter. And we all remember, was celebrated, even Kenyan newspapers and a lot of Kenyan people were celebrating. And I'm asking, guys, we live in the African continent. Angola is a country that was bleeds in oil in, term, in terms of the amount of oil that is produced. Not all kids, their income per capita is very high based on oil, but their literacy levels are really, really, really poor, actually close to where Kenya was in the early 80s. And we think that the president's daughter being the richest person is not connected to the politics. Four years later, of course, we found out what happened when her father left office. So that's an extent of kleptocracy. So they start through the, the connections in the public sector and we celebrate them, even in Kenya, celebrating the sons and daughters of people who've had private sector things and stuff like that. And if you travel across the, the world, you find Kenyans who are studying in Ivy League colleges. Thank God for them. Many of them are the sons and daughters. Some of them, sorry, are the sons and daughters. And the picture they give about African prosperity and how they speak very sharp business language, but they're defending the kleptocracy of their fathers. Largely, mothers not yet. But well, there are some mothers as well, but they defend the kleptocracy of their fathers. And then you go to the DRC Congo, where <laughs> mining contracts for the state are actually being managed, right, by warlords, um, by warlords. And presidents also actually sign state, in state, not the present one, but in the earlier days, the record is clear that the presidents were actually giving contracts to miners from his own office in his own hand. So in other words, it was not a contract with the state, but a contract with the president of that country. So these things are all over here. Our neighborhood has, has them as well. South Sudan, I mean, members of the army, they go directly to the central bank to pick their salaries um, in some cases and stuff like that. So we see kleptocracy is a problem in Kenya. And in my view, it is a reflection of a perverted economic policy. In Africa, we blame too much private sector and we might have capitalists. I mean, anybody who has who makes a savings a capitalist. We need to understand what the real economics definition of a capitalist is. So our ideological battles aside, a person who believes that they should have access to the state for the purposes of pushing their straw and not working and sucking off uh, taxes or uh, receiving licenses um, 
as we all know, you get mining licenses as a Kenyan, you do not intend to do it, you get it for free, and then you flip it over to a Canadian farm, and you make your 400 million and get celebrated as a businessman. All that is kleptocracy. Anything that makes use of resources and the power of the state to earn somebody money or property. You all know about um, the Upper Hill area. That's where my office is. And we know some of the buildings that are constructed up there is government buying back land, paying billions for land that was given out to a driver who used to work for the Kenya Railways or any of those other power states, and then he's flipping it back. So basically, this was state assets stripped, and then this person leverages it, sells it to a bank or to somebody else, and suddenly uh, earns a billion or whatever amount. So that's it. The African story is a sad story where heroes sometimes, or people who actually steal from the public, and many of these people are not politicians. We are so focused on politicians, and we should. But let's not forget, some of those people are probably our neighbors. Um, that's why it's an edifice that cannot stand. And once in a while, you see the collapse takes place. So criminality, especially in terms of fraud, is a part of how people interact with government, how, how people interact with their governments by appropriating government power. Yeah, thanks. Great, thanks a lot. Um, I want to bring in uh, Mohamed Walia, uh, Central Bank of Note, um, and, and and a person who comments a lot on our politics and on our economy, and ask you a question um, uh, about this conversation that we're having. Um, the Central Bank is, is, a, is, is in a position where, you know, it, it must be observing what's happening, and yet um, it, it has to tread carefully or tread lightly, lest it spooks. Um, is uh, some sort of you know economic uh, a reaction in the economy, but do you feel um, just looking at at how the central bank has you know spoken and couched itself with regard to our economic um, situation that it is acting responsibly um, or speaking responsibly about the economic situation in Kenya, uh, Mohammed? Uh, thank you very much, uh, John. Uh... Uh, first, this is a very nice uh, conversation. I've been following it. And uh, once in a while I got off uh, because of connection. But uh, I agree, before I answer your question, I, I think I agree with uh, uh, a lot of what was said uh, by the previous speakers, uh, including my friend and brother, uh, Kwame. I think I, I wrote about this a while ago. And uh, this uh, problem of corruption and kleptocracy that we have, uh, I th my, my view, and this is my personal view, is that it starts from the budget. And I remember I wrote uh, something about it about two, three years ago, that corruption is actually budgeted in Kenya. And, uh, you know, uh, look at it uh, this way. I mean, the budget has about, I think, uh, three or four stages. You have the formulation stage, uh, you have the adoption stage, uh, you have the control stage. So at the formulation level, you have people who actually plan and cook what is going to be eaten at the implementation level. So basically, you, it, it goes this way. You, you, you budget for uh, a pen at 300, 400 shillings, when it costs maybe seven shillings. And every other item is the same. Now, if you give, uh, if you give, uh, uh, if, if you are a private sector, if you are an institution that looks after its numbers, 
with a proper CFO. The 300 trillion shillings that we use, and you ask a private sector entity, a Safaricom or anyone else, to buy the same amount of goods and services, they'll probably spend a quarter of that. And that's very, very, very sad. Now, it then goes to, so this is done by the civil servants, as Kwame said, uh, who are the big players. So what is the process? How is the process supposed to control this? It, go, it goes to adoption. Now, when you go to adoption level, this is where parliament comes in. The problem, again, is we have a parliament that is not independent and that is very corrupt itself. So an oversighting body then gets compromised at the adoption level. So the MPs, maybe some of them even find out gaps, but then they are told, oh, you know what? I can put for you something in the budget, uh, you know, a road, uh, you know, something for your constituents. So they close their eyes, or some of them even get paid cash. As we remember, I think uh, 2012, 11, there's a time uh, we didn't have uh, a budget and finance committee for a long, long period because of, the set of these problems. Then uh, we have the execution level. This is where now everything that was planned at the previous two stages uh, gets implemented. So basically what, was, what we see and we complain about and uh, you know everybody cries about uh, this corruption, uh, this project is being eaten, something is happening. Now all that has been cooked in the previous two stages. So if you, can, if you can control those things, if you can you know, catch those things right at the beginning so that there's hardly anything to eat at the eating stage or the implementation stage, then that can be something that you know, uh, can save us a lot of money. Then we have the final stage, which is uh, you know, control, where the Auditor General now comes in and just uh, you know, shows us the movie, you know, what happened. Uh, it's a horror movie. The Auditor General just tells us 17 billion was lost here, 20 billion was lost here, 15 billion was lost here. You know, I, I grew up, I think, when uh, Mr. Njoroge was the Auditor General. Even during Moy's time, the Auditor General, they've always done a fantastic job. I've never seen an Auditor General that, you know, was corrupted or they hid staff. Then, you know, we had OCO, we have the current Auditor General. So they, all they tell us is all the bad stuff that happened. So this is after the event. There's hardly anything we can do about it. The next control level, of course, is the judiciary and the prosecution system and people now who are supposed to get these reports and are supposed to put people behind bars. It doesn't happen again. So the whole process is compromised. And this is something that goes, I, I, there's a speaker, I can't remember uh, his name, uh, who said this is because of failure of institutions. This is very, very important. If the institutions are not working, there is no need to blame, you know, the civil servants. Uh, there's no need to blame, uh, you know, the private sector guy who basically uh, wants a tender from government. And of course, you have the individual players, as Kwame said. There are people every five years who sponsor you know, parties and political parties, and, and they sponsor presidential candidates, they, they, they probably spend billions. Uh, why? They have because they know they have, uh, there's a vendor-driven, uh, you know, uh, budgeting process. And by the time uh, they're sponsoring these guys, they already have projects that they want uh, to be budgeted for. They're not necessarily need-driven. 
So basically someone comes up and says, I want three billion, five billion back for, for my campaigns and make another three billion. So what do, what do we do? Oh, hey, you know what? We can do a railway here. There is no need for it. So basically what happens is all these projects we have are vendor driven. So this is the problem we have and we need to deal with. If we look at the budget, for example, now we have a supplementary uh, budget. How many people, all we see is a hundred billion more to be spent. Uh, come on. Uh, who has looked after those, uh, who has looked at those numbers? We know it's a campaign time. We know it's an election time. We all know that it's padded. Every ministry that has been given something, they've been probably been told uh, part of this is for campaigns. So basically, I mean, you look at uh, budgets, we have only six months left, and then you have uh, a budget that has doubled, uh, or, you know, 50% uh, state house budget, another budget somewhere else. So basically, just look at the supplementary numbers. I mean, uh, the last numbers I looked at, uh, maybe Kwame has more updated numbers uh, and is more up to date, is November. In November, I think KRA did 5% more in terms of collections. We're talking about fiscal consolidation. All along, the last 10 years, we've been talking about fiscal consolidation. We have debt problems. But here you are, the KRA collects uh, 5%, which is, I don't know, around 100 billion. And in, logically, what is supposed to happen is you save that 100 billion so that then it improves your numbers. But we've not done that. We've consumed that 100 billion and even more. And that is the issues that we have to deal with. Now, uh, coming to your question, uh, Alan, uh, the central bank is, you know, there are two books. There's the fiscal books and the monetary books. The central banks are generally very professional. Uh, it doesn't matter, even in uh, you know, Africa, Kenya, uh, third world countries, they try to be independent. They try to maintain that independence. Uh, of course, we had uh, days of kotut and, uh, you know, where we went crazy stuff, uh, you know, crazy stuff were happening. And uh, sometimes those kind of things happen. But generally, they're very professional run. Uh, of course, uh, do they help uh, with, in, in our case, for example, uh, does the central bank, I would say, aid in the bad behavior of the government? Yes. If, if, for example, uh, the central bank uh, stood its ground, uh, things could probably have even gotten worse to the extent that probably the government reacts. But of course, the central bank, we have to remember, is an agent of government. They're independent, yes, but they're an agent of government. So you cannot basically say they are 100% independent. Uh, in our case, for example, uh, Kwame will know that the only reserves uh, that you know, we have been building up Either comes from uh, mostly diaspora, uh, of course, exports, uh, which has not been doing very well, and uh, debts. So basically, uh, every time these guys go and collect, uh, you know, uh, $2 billion in a euro bond, uh, that money ends up in uh, central bank reserves. And then that is, that probably uh, is something that you can see, uh, you know, uh, acts or uh, tries and helps with the foreign exchange, uh, you know, position. So I, I would not, when it comes to our corruption and uh, our current debt uh, issues, I would not put any blame on the central bank. 
uh, you know, because generally, as you know, we've seen, uh, they've been a bit, uh, they've been largely uh, independent. So I think uh, that is a contribution I probably uh, can make now, and uh, I will take any uh, further questions. Thank you very much. All right, Mohammed. Uh, I uh, thanks. Those are really important uh, insights that you have, and and I just want to track back into something that you were talking about with regard to your conversation. Um, we're in a political season now. Lots of promises being made on both sides or on all sides, right? Now, I, I want to put you on the spot a little bit here. Um, you've spoken fairly passionately about your support for one, you know, one um, political formation, but at some point the conversation seems to be between yourselves and other people um, of, you know, of, of, of great respectability. It seems to be a Bora Kiongozi versus Kiongozi Bora conversation, right? As opposed to actually asking um, more of our leadership um, on all sides who are, have skeletons everywhere. It seems to be that we're looking at the lesser evil or, or the evil lesser, um, <laughs> um, as it's been put in other places. Uh, what's what's your response to to the the state of our politics and and the choices that we have with regard to the very serious issues that we're discussing this evening? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Alan. I think uh, first of all, uh, look, uh, we ha we can. There are certain things we cannot run away from. We cannot run away uh, from the fact that our politics is ethnic based. It's an ethnic. Censors. Uh, uh, we uh, are we proud of this? No. Uh, are we likely to change this in the near future? I don't think so. So then, in that context, you have to look at uh, who is presenting uh, himself uh, or herself uh, to the voters. And I'll, I'll concentrate on the highest office, which is the president. Now. Once you do that, there is the, you know, uh, idealism, fantasy about, you know, uh, they're, they're very good presidents that can come from this group I'm talking to now. And, uh, you know, I would love to see, i love to uh, see, a, a, you know, a scenario where Kwame uh, has a chance to become the president of this country or, uh, you know, John Alan Namu or uh, anyone else. Now, that is uh, idealistic uh, position. But the question here is, practically, who can be the president of this country? Very few people, because it's all about numbers. It's about uh, mobilizing voters. It's about, uh, you know, uh, uh, as they say, the three M's. There's the, mes the message, uh, the masses, uh, and money that is required. Now, most of them, the message is basically lost because it's all about uh, tribal uh, numbers and arithmetics. So the other thing is the masses that these people have and the money that they have. Once you get that context, then you just, it's horses for courses. You just have to look at it and say, who between these two guys, because now we've been reduced to that too. I know my friend, Mother Karua, would, would probably uh, be very angry if she's listening to this because you're talking about a third force, then you would ask yourself who between these two guys is likely to help us to get out of the problems we have. 
Now, I know a lot of people will now come back and say, oh, uh, the person you support, for example, Raila, has gone to bed with Uhuru, but Raila is not a president. He was not the president. You cannot uh, blame him for trying to get any advantage to try and get into that office. So basically, the other person who is competing with him is, and I'm not, uh, I'm not I don't want, I didn't really want to discuss politics, uh, but, you know, politics and economics uh, and our lives are intertwined. So I can't avoid it because, you, you know, uh, you also asked uh, the question that way. The other person who is competing with Rylak is a person who was in government over the last, you know, 10 years. So we've looked at what that person can do. Uh, that person is part of the problem, the economic problems we face today. You know, there are some people who might say, oh, okay, you know, the last three, four years, uh, the, the person was sidelined. But even if you look at only the first five years, uh, we know what happened. We know the country was looted. We know projects and it was all about entrepreneurs. Uh, uh, so my, my, my point is, uh, the only you know, way out of this is someone who can come and tell us at least the truth. Because uh, John, uh, to be honest, I don't even think our position is what it is. And probably Kwame uh, would agree that is our debt register what it is? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, if you look at Zambia, when a new government came on board, they basically uh, looked at it and said, no, guys, we are in a bigger problem that we are in now. So when Kwame says, for example, that it's a very, very sad situation, I, I think it could be even worse when, when, when new government comes in and looks at those numbers. Then what can they do? Now, I, I, this is my personal opinion. I am biased. I have to say that. But I believe someone like Raila, uh, he's, he's a 76-year-old uh, man. I don't think he will seek a second uh, term uh, in future. I don't know, but I don't think so. So he would have the uh, courage to tell us the truth and to try and stabilize uh, our macroeconomics. And, and, and that's the most important thing. I think Kwame is a very good economist. He will know that, that there is no physical space to do all these promises. People are promising, uh, you know, heaven, including my own candidate. So the first thing we need to do is to make sure that the country does not default. And that's what is happening now, because I think Treasury have been told, uh, maybe by the president, that I don't want to default during my term. Do anything else you want to do. If the counties don't get money, I don't care. Because look at it this way, uh, John. We are collecting uh, probably around 1.6 trillion. And uh, this year it's budgeted that we're going to spend 1.2 trillion the highest single expenditure item is to pay debts. And now, if you cannot do that, you're going to default. So the, the, the instructions they have is, I don't care if salaries are not paid. I don't care if hospitals are not funded. I don't care if counties are not funded. Just make sure we don't default. And that's the current position. That's how bad it is. So, uh, you know, if you now elect Jubilee B, the same, you know, uh, the, the, the right hand and the left hand of Jubilee, I don't think we have any hope of turning anything around because 
they'll be seeking probably, they'll be thinking, these are guys who in 2013 were thinking about 2022. So in, in, in 2022, they'll be thinking about 2032. That means it will be 10 years of wastage, uh, you know, unnecessary expenditure, paying back uh, political uh, debt, uh, <laughs> spending money on uh, what I don't even understand up to today. Uh, and nobody explains bottoms up or bottom up, uh, you know, uh, economic model. I think it's a campaign slogan. In my view, it's not an economic framework because no one has explained to me how it works. And uh, then we would just get into more problem. But I think uh, the, the kind of uh, person Raila is, uh, the courage that he has, he probably is the only person who can come and tell people, guys, I promise you this, but I'm not going to do it because this is more important. And I think that's my uh, uh, personal view. And as I said, I am biased, but I would want anyone else in this group to come and tell me otherwise. Thank you, John. All right. Thanks a lot, uh, Mohammed. I mean, I, I, we could spend all night rebutting political um, positions here, uh, especially the fact that, you know, even within Raila's coterie, there are a number of people, lots of skeletons, prob possibly also wanting to, to predate in the same way that um, people on the other side are, are looking to do. But I, I want us to move to questions from the audience this evening. And the first one that I'll read is from uh, Joseph Kibugi. And he asks a question, I think, that, that Reginald had alluded to, um, uh, but I'll, I'll give this one to you first, Kwame. And he's asking, my question is with regard to the middle-level um, bureaucracy, which enables kleptocracy, how would a process of overhauling these guys look like? Um, Kwame, as you answer, perhaps you, you can take us back to 2003 and the, 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 the strategies and the moves that um, the, Kibaki's the Kibaki's administration uh, made with regard to middle-level uh, bureaucrats um, at that time. Uh, go ahead, Kwame. Okay. <clears throat> okay, first, <clears throat> sorry. First, while we say that um, corruption, I mean, especially kleptocracy, let's concentrate on kleptocracy, stealing state resources or using state power to steal. Uh, while we say it is pervasive, um, I would assess that, you know, the government of Kenya has almost 700,000 employees. Uh, in my view, this is like a pyramid. And the system is probably 2,000, 3,000 at the most, 5,000 people who are most critical for it now. So the first thing is actually the signaling effect. What would you do? Uh, when President Kibaki came in in 2003, one of the first things they did was to, to suspend some procurement officers from the Ministry of Finance. There was a lot of noise, including ethnic noise about certain ethnic groups being, you know, you know the noise that we Kenyans do. We pick on the fact that if that happens, then obviously that a certain ethnic group is being targeted. It's, targeting is possible, but at the same time. So what would I do? I think the first thing that we would do is any president who comes in should make all wealth declaration forms public knowledge. Place them on a portal, and anybody can check on that. That's the first. The second is simply pick randomly every procurement form, I mean, every declaration, wealth declaration form in the public sector, every, all over in the public sector and everybody else, and give an audit firm and tell them, if you find anything here that raises questions, please let the government know. Of course, you'd have to pay for it. We have to invest in fighting kleptocracy. So that removal, I can tell you, it will not be difficult to find. It will not be difficult to find. I mean, 
basic spreadsheet techniques, even sense test will tell you it is not difficult to find. Some would be found. So the first thing is just basically setting an example from the top. And if any president comes in, will you please tell Raila to do that, to simply declare his wealth on a daily, on a yearly basis, and that wealth declaration forms should be made available to the public so that the public eye and obviously professional accountants and auditors can look at it and raise whatever questions. Um, that would be the first, uh, the first thing to, to, to do. Because that's where you'll see a lot, a lot. So let me tell you, um, I come from the West of Kenya, but not this area that I'm going to tell you about. Um, I have an auntie who works somewhere around the, the sugar belt in a place called Koru. And one time we took a drive there before, before COVID 2019. So just bear with me, I'll tell you what this story means. And we were walking with somebody who's a professional friend who lives outside Kenya um, and practices as an architect um, in some place in the US. We went to school with him. So we were giving him a drive as we tried to travel west. And one of the things that he told me is, we drove over a 40 kilometer uh, spread around that area, just trying to do that place before we could connect out there. Some roads are good, some are not very bad. But one of the things that he, not, that he noticed was he asked me, what kind of people are building these mansions? There are people in that area, not one, not two, almost a dozen houses where people have mansions with lifts. I know it'll shock some of you because people believe that the epicenter of poverty is Western Kenya. Well, the data doesn't show it, but it's okay. We can believe what we want. People in this country are taking agricultural land, converting it from sugarcane into residential places with lifts. Um, it's not one, but that's not a problem. I think I like prosperity. I wish I could get there as well. What we found most fascinating is if you try to do a social network analysis, I mean, we didn't do it properly, many of them have a public sector background. So here is somebody putting some 30, perhaps 40 million shillings in a house. I like it when Kenyans are prosperous, except that they are uncomfortably close to the state. And they are not politicians. These are basic, basic people. I kid you not. The reason this picked us was we are used to seeing politicians with helipads. One of them had a helipad with his initials right on top of it. That's what got me curious. Now, this is probably replicated in every part of Kenya. And it's also replicated when you go to Nanyuki and you go past Nanyuki as you go towards Wajia, there are people there with fantastic lunches. Except again, many of them have a public sector connection. So if you take it in that way and that kind of approach, my view is use the data and let the data guide you to whoever you will find. Basic accounting skills. And most of these people will. Just like you know that in Nairobi, uh, new settlements and obviously many of these houses, industry places, close to three, three, um, three out of every 10 dwellings in Nairobi for residential houses are owned by people who work at either the revenue service or one part of government or they work in Kenyan parastatals. We know it. Um, some of those houses are probably well constructed, some not. But basically the point is, it is not as easy to hide wealth as we've been given the impression. And maybe people shouldn't. And discretion is a good thing. But the signs of kleptocracy are staring at us. We are just not choosing to pay attention and work with them. So the reason I give this anecdote is not to show that I know people who are, oh yes, some of those houses by the one person up there actually, I kid you not, has a nine, nine hole golf course in his private property. 
uh, it's a he. So again, yes, they have a connection. So it is possible that they work hard, but it is also possible that if you can connect to the state, let's ask ourselves. So the evidence is there, it's not so difficult. The political point that will have to be made is like what the president has to make about KPLC. KPLC is rotten in terms of governance, and it's not the only one. You go through the state corporations and you can tell. Are we prepared to take temporary dysfunction to actually fix the state? Um, if we are prepared to do that, we can actually do it. It'll be painful, there's no doubt. It's so heavily entrenched. It'll be painful, no doubt. But that, uh, that evidence of clearing is available. And they will do the same thing that they've done before. Some of them obviously also have political patronage. So clearing that is a useful thing. There are proper ways to actually design this thing, including having a cutoff and doing a, what we Kenyans do not like to consider about it. What would we do with a moratorium that is, that is built around having people declare? So we can draw a line and build the state afresh. But it will definitely inevitably take clearing a huge part of the middle cadre because politicians often go, and these guys actually guide them about how to get contracts. So the problem is actually internal. And that most Kenyans, citizens, such as us and all of those who are here, concentrate on looking at the politicians is much, much, much more useful. If you put the quantum of money that actually ends up in the, in the, in the, in the mines, in the, in the pockets um, of that middle cut of, of, of private sector, public sector professionals and parastatus, it's probably more than all, all parliamentarians take in a year. I think so, uh, because most parliamentarians after three years of being in, or one term of being in parliament, five years later, you see them in the newspaper, they're broke because they, they get the cash and everything else. But the guys who actually convert public money into real property and live lavish lives with their kids in those parts of the world are really, really not too many. And that's part of the reason why they, you can find them, but they have a lot of property that belongs to, to the Kenyan public. So it's that. So there's no neat solution, but it can be written down in two pages. I mean, uh, easily, and you'd solve a big part of this problem. Painfully, but it would save the state. Thanks. All right. So, um, Reginald, I'm coming to you now um, before we, we start to, to wind down. Um, there's a question that's come in um, to the, the Mwango Capital inbox. And um, he asks, um, it seems a majority of Kenyans do not think stashing cash in offshore accounts is not a form of kleptocracy. Now, I ask this um, with the context of things like the International Financial Services Center that um, we are in the process of setting up here in Kenya, and also something that Kwame had mentioned, and you had as well, that corruption, and, and Mohammed as well, that corruption is budgeted, that corruption has been legitimized through the system. Now, I ask this as a journalist because this is, this is something that we struggle with. Um, we have... Um, and I'll speak for myself, in, in reporting about the Pandora Papers um, expose, what we thought was we were doing was making a strong enough argument for the infrastructure that supports um, kleptocracy without actually you know, saying or leading people right to the door. But what it wound up becoming was a very didactic discussion about the institutions that are called global finance, right? So I'll ask it this way. Um, and, and I'll kind of ride on, on, on the question that's been asked in the inbox. What is it that the media is or is not doing to be able to explain this infrastructure properly so that we can then now start to get some of the answers that we've heard on this call? Um, Reginald. Um, th thanks, John. And um, 
I, I don't think blaming the media here would be right. Uh, but the media actually did their part of raising the, the issue of the Pandora Papers, as in there are people that have money stashed out there. And and it's it's not something new. Um, the, when the, we're doing the um, demonetization of the old currency, um, there was a grace period or a moratorium or something that was given that if you have money outside, you can bring it in and, and stuff like that. And, you know, people brought in their money. There was also KRA that at some point also did that, bring money, no questions asked, just bring back your, your money. Some came, um, I don't think it was done well, but I think we cleaned a lot of money through a legal process now, but now people brought it in and now took it out nicely. So now there is a nice paper trail that it's clean money. Um Can we stop people from stashing money outside if it's genuine money again? goes on to the, the, the exchange control measures the country uh, puts in place. The, the failure here, um, and, and I might, uh, for uh, forgive me for sounding like a, um, a, a stuck record, the failure here is parliament. Because I'll give you an example. In, in the UK, um, Boris and his buddies had a party. Uh, which broke the law on um, COVID uh, regulations. Um, they did it uh, in 2020. Uh, someone leaked it in 2021. The guy is in, on fire in parliament right now. For This is just a party. They, they just had a party during COVID. Yeah? But the party was against um, the, the, the law they passed to try and curb uh, COVID. Um, and the guy is in, in a situation where he can actually lose the, uh, being a prime minister. Yeah, um, the, the party can easily recall him uh, back. Um, so you'll find in a situation where a, a reporter has come out and said, hey, uh, these guys have money, lots of money outside. Um, parliament should have come up and said, we want to know what, how this money has gone out. Um, and not on party lines, um, and 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 that's that, that's where sometimes we have a problem with our parliament. We are so stuck on party lines that even things that don't make sense, we will still vote on party lines instead of coming and saying, no, 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 there is this one billion. Uh, can we see the source or find out the source of this one billion? Yeah, and as Kwame said, um, currently I, I believe the president and the deputy president uh, did uh, wealth declarations. I don't know whether it's public or not public, but they did wealth declarations of what they own and stuff like that. Um, before they come out of power, they need to do another check, uh, declaring what is your wealth now, vis-a-vis uh, -vis what your salary you earned before that. Um, if there is money outside there, uh, parliament should be able to... And that's, and that's why we, we bring out the element of strengthening institutions. Does parliament have the power to censure a president? Uh, does the parliament have a, a power to ask for information? Uh, in terms of if, if if there is money that has been found outside, um, does the central bank have the mechanism to be able to know which Kenyans have money outside, especially if you are a Kenyan inside, how much money is leaving the country going outside, um, which would be an easier mechanism to put. But if you notice, most of the money that is stolen, especially on the big projects, um, that money never actually reaches the country. Some of this money, example, Eurobond 1, which up to now, we don't know whether it's in New York, it's in, it's in London, it's whatever, the money dissipated. So you realize that this money actually never came into a Kenyan account. Because then it's easy to trace. So money is, 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 is staying outside there. 
So is it illegal for someone to put money outside? No, it is not illegal. Uh, but the source of the funds um, should worry. Right now we are looking at a case where there's money that has been wired to the central bank. Um, and everyone saying, no, that's not our money. Uh, as in the whole 748 uh, million, I think, uh, that is in there. And everyone is throwing up their hands saying, no, no it's not ours. Treasury said, no, it's not ours. Central bank doesn't know what uh, that money is for. So I, I, I think the weak link here, especially when it comes to um, money in offshore accounts, uh, goes one to the strength of parliament to be able to um, have the right people. And, and I know um, Kenyans always say uh, the president, the, whatever this, a lot of civic education needs to be done. Uh, that if we have a strong parliament, we should not even worry who the president is. Um, but if we put jokers in parliament, then the president becomes very important because then he becomes powerful. He bribes these guys, they vote along um, uh, party lines. So if, 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 I don't think the media did anything wrong. Um, a lot of talks uh, have been, were done uh, that explained how all these offshore business tax havens and stuff like that um, work in. But once now you are in public service, that's what I'm saying now, uh, following what Kwame said, if you declared your wealth at the beginning and you did not declare you had an offshore account, that is deceit. Uh, that is deception. And it needs to be, be able to be punishable. It needs to be able to be, uh, you're able to be censured for that. And the institution that is able to do that is actually parliament and create legislation that defines, can a public servant have an offshore account? Uh, can a, um, a public officer have um, a business registered outside operating? Um, it all will drive back to, um, will drive back to parliament. Uh, but before I just, I just end, um, you know, Muhammad um, is trying to be very nice on his fellow central bank uh, friends. Uh, our debt problem, central bank has played a very big role on it. Uh, because they were there in every roadshow, uh, singing out all the fake praises about how our revenue is increasing, um, massaging statistics to make it look like we are able to, um, uh, to repay. Uh, all our reserves right now are literally debt-funded uh, uh, reserves, and that's why we have to keep on going to the eurobond market, because if we don't, we, we cannot be a country that survives on uh, diaspora for foreign uh, foreign reserves. As in literally, then it's, 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 it's like just crossing our fingers and praying, I hope that, grand, that mother in that country will send money this month, because if they don't send money, then we are stuck as a country. What, what kind of uh, fiscal monetary policy will, will, will that be? And the problem is Kenya has been managing its currency for a while. Um, and the effect of what Central Bank has done to keep Kenya shilling at 100 for a period of three years or so, um, the impact is going to be catastrophic. Um, because we, we have, there are some things that we've suppressed and uh, which will implode at some point in time. IMF have come and they're trying to make sure that they let it free float. That's why it's now at 118, 114, uh, which is still uh, overvalued um, in my own estimation. Um, so Central Bank has played a big role um, in facilitating this. They have not been... Uh, the credibility that comes from a Central Bank is the ability that, one, they're independent, which brings discipline to the fiscus um, because they are independent. And we've not seen that discipline in, in the fiscus. Um, 
sometimes also not blaming them because again it's the monetary stance that the central bank has taken uh, of managing a currency which makes the other instruments that they have uh, like interest rates and stuff like that important um, I, I even wonder why the monetary policy committee meets uh, because even if they say the central bank rate is at seven percent even if you look at the lagged effect and all um, there is no impact on on the economy there's no impact on borrowing rates um, in, in in the economy so uh, and and that's another institution that actually needs to be strengthened and become independent and be able to issue independent um, reports uh, by, by by themselves whether it's contrary to what the fiscal side is trying to um, is, is is trying to do yeah right I think John uh, are you back um, oh yes yes I am eh? um, so so I think what I'd like for us to do in the last 10 minutes of this conversation is to have a, a, a quick fire round of questions slash comments um, from members of the audience. Um, and, and really, let's, let's try and be quick about it because we'd like to also get some final thoughts from our, from our speakers this evening. Um, Paul Kiprono, you're up first. You can unmute your mic and ask your question or make a comment. And let, let, let's try and keep it short, please. Paul, can you hear us? Paul Kiprono? It seems like he's not there. All right. Okay, so Paul's not there. I think we're going to start um, as, as we get other requests for, um, for the mic. Um, Becky, you can just let us know um, um, who else has requested the microphone and I'll, and I'll add them. Uh, but as we're, as we're now winding down the conversation, um, uh, gentlemen, and, and I must apologize to Wanjiro Gekonyo, who, who would have added a lot of depth to this conversation um, had we been able to put her on this space. Um, gents, I'd just like to, um, to go towards our final thoughts now. And um, um, Mohameda, are you... Uh, no, you don't have the mic yet. Um, uh, Reginald, I'll, I'll start with you as we get everybody back. Um, as you look forward um, uh, to the future, um, what for you would be the one thing that you would hope, and by the future I mean the near future, what to you is the one thing that you would hope that um, we can achieve past August um, in trying to turn this situation around, uh, Reginald? Um, thanks, thanks, John. Uh, one, one thing I would hope is that the, the, the new government that comes in has a single focus. Um, I think Kenya is at a stage where we have to reset. And by resetting, I mean choose one or two things that you're going to do in the next five years. Yeah. Um, so, some, sometimes the problem that we have as a country is trying to do everything in one, one budgeting cycle, uh, build all the um, houses for low-cost housing in one budgeting cycle uh, and things like that. So if, 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 if the new government that is coming, one can decipher the problem that we have, um, which is an income problem and a rural poverty problem and no upward mobility whatsoever, and say in the next uh, two, three years, uh, we want to deal with the leakages of finances in this country and we want to deal with debt. That's what I am doing 
as Raila or Molo Odinga or as uh, William Ruto or as uh, Kalonzo Msioko or Ruben Kigame or whoever else is running for president. That's what I am coming to do. After four years, we will not have a corruption problem. After four years, I would have restructured uh, the debt in, in, in this country. Um, then you set a platform for someone else to come and say, uh, in the next two, three years, I want to make sure that we have access to electricity, water, and quality education. Then you realize in the next five years, you start saying now we want to industrialize one, two, three. In 15, 20 years' time, you are a Singapore, you are a Malaysia, you are a whatever. But you cannot do all these things like what Mohammed said. We cannot promise all these wonderful things uh, and ignore the current state which the economy and the country actually is in. Yeah, and, and right now, I think the person who comes in just needs to one, deal with, um, uh, completely deal with corruption, which means strengthening institutions, um, strengthening parliament, and all the other institutions that need to be strengthened. Um, sort out the debt problem. You will have set Kenya on a platform now for someone now to start building towards growth. Uh, as Kwame said, it's not a competition whether Tanzania is growing. Um, and it said when you hear African opposition leaders promising people's bullet trains and spaghetti roads in a place where you have 70-80% unemployment and you wonder, is, is this really the alternative that we have? So for, for me, that's, that's the one. August 22, whoever's coming into power, if their main goal is going to sort out um, corruption uh, or kleptocracy, sort out the debt, uh, if that's the only two things they'll do the next five years, they'll have really set the platform for the right direction we are supposed to be going. Or else, everything else they're going to be doing, honestly, yeah, it's like what Mohammed said, I don't even know why people are fighting to be a president right now, because whoever is coming in, you are coming into a hole, uh, a broke government, just like what, Jubilee, what happened to Jubilee. Uh, these guys got into power in 2013 with all these fancy terms, then someone had to whisper in their ears that the country is broke. So that's why the first thing they had to do is to go increase, uh, recalculate GDP so that they can create some fictitious uh, headroom and borrow. Because there was no money when they came in. And they came in. I hope the next regime that comes in does not make the same mistake of thinking they're coming into a pool of trillions that they're going to achieve all these promises. Uh, but if they can just deal with those two things, they will, have, for me, set the platform for whoever comes next to now do the next thing um, like that. And if our politics and our economic development starts going in such a way, we will be fine in 15, 20 years' time. Uh, sorry, uh, Alan, uh, can I just add one thing? Sure. I think yeah, sure. sure. Yeah, I think, uh, look, uh, we are at, at a tipping point uh, when it comes to debt. You remember uh, when our debt to GDP was around uh, mid-40s, uh, the Treasury, Rotich, used to tell us, no, our threshold, our IMF threshold is higher. We can go up to 70. Uh, of course, on a net present value, uh, which I think we have not yet, but we are approaching. So we are at a tipping point. Now, uh, we can talk about fighting corruption. We can talk about so many things. All those things are medium to long term. I mean, if we've not been able to fight corruption for 60 years, we're not going to say we are going to do it in three months or six months or even one year because that's all we have. 
So my, in my view, uh, the most immediate thing we need to do uh, when, any, when the new administration comes into office is to cut expenditure. We need to bring down the budget deficit. We have a deficit problem. You cannot do a deficit of 7, 8, 9% over six years and not fall over. That is impossible to do that. So we are about to fall over. What we need to do is to pause, to stop all this nonsense and all these projects. I did some project analysis a while back. And what I found is even if we don't take on new projects, the level of investment that is required to basically finish the existing projects is almost, you know, seven, eight hundred billion a year. So that tells you we have all these uh, sorts of projects which we are running. We're starting new ones. And this is the cause of all our problems. So first of all, what we need to do, we need to cut expenditure. It's going to be painful because there's, there's little areas where you can cut expenditure. We've got to just pause and stop any new projects. I think if we cut our expenditure by about 30%, I mean, in this country where I am now, we, in 2016, we had an issue in terms of oil prices and all that. And someone went in and said, let's go and look at all the government expenditure and uh, rationalize and look at what is happening. So they cut 30%. And that is the kind of, you know, brave action that we require. Someone has to go in and say, we're going to cut about 30% of our expenditure. John, we don't have a revenue problem in this country. And I've written about that. Uh, you know, Kwame says that all the time. We're collecting good money. We collect. KRA is surpassing its, its, uh, its, its uh, targets every now and then. But the problem is, whatever you raise, whatever you, you, you get on top of what you've planned, it's not going towards saving us anything. We're doing supplementaries after supplementaries. So we have an expenditure problem. Unless we cut that problem of, you know, just spending and spending and spending. And unless we bring our budget deficit to, you know, uh, around 4% or even 5% for a period of three, four years, that is the only time then we can think about what else we can do. But as we speak now, we, we face a very serious problem. And any government that comes in now just needs to look at the books, talks about macroeconomic stabilization, and nothing else. I don't think we can even do much development in the next you know, uh, one, two years, uh, because basically we don't have that fiscal capacity. And if you now continue to do what you're doing now, what you're going to face is you're going to default. Once you default, you're not able to even borrow to pay what you've borrowed in the past. You get into this vicious circle. Everybody will then lend to you at exorbitant, you know, uh, you know, uh, prices for anything you borrow. That puts you into more debt problems. And then you go on and on and on. You go into this debt trap, which then which is self-reinforcing, and then you end up 
just being, you know, uh, Zambia or, uh, you know, uh, any other country that has had debt issues. So my, uh, uh, if I were to advise anybody, that's what I'll tell them to do. Basically, please cut your expenditure, expenditure stop new projects, rationalize, uh, review all the projects that are currently running where you're putting in money and nothing is happening. You know, the IMF report, which I saw about a month or so ago, says basically a trillion since 2013. At, you know, since Kibaki left office, we have a trillion worth of projects of which those projects are basically just rubbish. You know, those projects have stalled and we continue to pump in money. And by the way, we also have a lot of money that we have already committed, which is already in our debt numbers, and for which we can reuse for priority projects. So, for example, if we have about, you know, two, three hundred billion that we have already committed, we can redirect that to something else instead of borrowing new money, which is two, three hundred billion, and then making our debt situation worse. So I think we have an expenditure problem. Unless we tackle our expenditure problem and our deficit problem, we are not going to do anything else. We will not be able to do so. And if we try to do so, we're going to be in a big, big problem. Thank you. All right. Uh, thanks, Mohammed. I think Mugambi is here. So Mugambi can share a few thoughts and then I think we'll go to the closing round of uh, thoughts from the various speakers. Mugambi? Thank you very much. I, I think this has been a very vibrant discussion and very useful things are being said. Um, I'll try and be quick. Uh, typically, when you're speaking, you don't notice the time is passing. It's only your listeners who, who suffer. Um, when Kibaki became president, one of the things he did was raise uh, public sector salaries. Um, MPs used to earn, I think, 50,000 Kenya shillings. Um, and apparently in order to fight corruption, uh, since people said that corruption was taking place because people were trying to supplement their low salaries, um, we saw the increase of salaries for members of parliament. We saw people like the AG uh, then go up to 2 million, and soon everybody was, was um, clamoring for pay rises. And what was supposed to cure corruption didn't actually cure it. In fact, it became worse. So that right now, government is probably the best employer in Kenya, um, which is where you find that everybody is angling to find a, a seat in the public sector. And uh, I won't repeat what Owino said about wealth and their link to to, to public sector service. But the question I would have for Mohammed and, and uh, Kwame is, since we're talking about kleptocracy, uh, which is using public funds to enrich oneself, what is the, uh, what's, what's, what's your view on pay rise or, or the level of pay for public servants in Kenya? vis-a-vis -vis other countries and also relating that to productivity. Um, I think that would be my uh, quick comment. 
or question and and then a quick comment would be on the budgeted uh, corruption i think i have served in um in three state corporation boards and i can confirm that budgeted corruption does happen i served as a uh, chair of finance in one of the state corporations and um, in that capacity one year I saw a budget for I think it was 70 million for uh, roof repair and when I looked at the previous year I saw that the same amount had been provided and I asked is it the same roof and I was told yes but it wasn't repaired because procurement didn't happen um, I said okay so that budget went through and in the next year I saw that same item I think some people need to be bright even when they're doing these things because they're still there. So I saw that figure. And of course, if you're writing these things, you ought to ask yourself, this man asked this question last year. Is he likely to ask it again this year? So the, the figure was there. And of course, we were given a cock and bull story. We we did throw it out. But that's just something that I picked. So you can imagine how many of such happen and this is one organization I'm talking about. So you can imagine how, how many of such happen in other places. So um, I think that's my contribution. And thanks for the opportunity. Thanks. Uh, so perhaps as we close, and especially in those thoughts, uh, so maybe I have two things I wanted to ask, uh, especially with the youth in a country where you find there's a lot of kleptocracy uh, in the system. So you find a lot of apathy also amongst the youth there. Uh, because they don't see opportunities to succeed without actually uh, uh, other people stealing. Uh, if, uh, they, there used to be an, an anonymous account on Twitter called, called Tasker. I think he had a pinned tweet, and in the tweet it usually said something like, uh, "In a in a in 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 most developed countries, you find like the people who are uh, wealthy are mostly who have earned it through entrepreneurship, but then you come to most developing countries, and then you find like most of them." People at the top, uh, maybe like as examples have been given before, is mostly politicians and politicians' cronies. So in such a system, you find a lot of like apathy amongst the youth because they don't see an opportunity to actually rise to the top. And entrepreneurs don't have that, not given that chance to actually succeed when the system itself is kind of pitted against you when you have to uh, kind of... You, you, you're, you're running against all these people who have uh, resources and connections and in such a case that it's not meritocracy based. So I think as we close, I think we need to perhaps then like uh, challenge ourselves as speakers and also like uh, maybe say something about how you encourage people to be able to, to actually have hope in a system that is kind of run in a kleptocratic way. So maybe I would start with uh, Kwame who hasn't spoken in a while. Then, uh, then we go to Mohammed, uh, Reginald, and then we'll uh, maybe close with John. Kwame. All right. Um, thanks for this opportunity. I, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear yes, Mugambi speak about his experience in the public sector. And uh, he and I have a running joke. We always wish each other a happy new year, like two months into the year. So happy new year, Mugambi. But to get more serious now, uh, your question is right. I think we make the wrong diagnosis when we say that the reason people steal is because um, they're poorly paid. Uh, that's the rationalization for theft, which we even Kenyans seem to do that. And we do that a lot for other professionals. People say things such as, uh, and I use this as an example, how can you pay somebody with, a, with a, say an MBA 80,000 shillings? What do you expect them to survive? Man? Sorry, those are the wages in Kenya. If you earn 80,000 shillings per month in Kenya, over a year, you earn close to um, six times 
what the average wage in the whole country is. So I think one of the things that Kenyans don't understand is just how poor a country we are. Um, um, so Kenyans work a whole 12 months and the average income that's earned by everybody for the whole year is 200,000 shillings. So try live on 200,000 shillings anywhere in Kenya for the whole year. Remember, that's what you use to pay your food, you pay your medical care, whatever other thing you do, your clothes, your shoes, whatever it is, it is. We are a poor country. And first, the first thing we need in the frame of this mind is poverty is not to be celebrated. My religious background tells me that, uh, and culturally as well. But the point is we need to let people know that we are a poor society and having people live off the fat, uh, or rather live lavishly off the taxes of poor people is in itself uh, uh, unconscionable and unacceptable. We should have that intolerance towards people trying to cream the public sector. So it's true. You can give parliamentarians 20 million shillings each. It would still be affordable. I personally don't think that um, I have a problem with the wages that people are paid in Kenya in the public sector. The problem with public sector wages, and listen carefully, people, the problem with public sector wages is you don't have a straight wage. So that one month, based on how many trips you've taken in the public sector, you could earn up to a million. And then in the next month, you earn 400,000. So people have, therefore, an incentive to generate trips and stuff like that. So those allowances. My view is this, just like most of us do. Nobody in the public sector does, private sector does stuff like that. They simply pack your wages together and tell you, this is your packet, take it or leave it. Or you negotiate based on what you think is acceptable to you. And when you think you need a new wage, you can actually approach them. And if your productivity matches it, it will be given to you. In the public sector, there's a lot of scope for people to part their wages in the name of alliances. I've never understood, for instance, something like the attorney general. You are a qualified lawyer because that is what is required 15 years to be able to qualify as, a, as the attorney general. Then you take the job and then you ask the public sector to pay you, is it 80,000 or 100,000 per month for a non-practicing? But the reason you took it is because you already practiced for 15 years and you've qualified. So you get paid another a non-practicing allowance. I mean, that's just theft. Uh, so it's the design of the wage system in the public sector. And so people have an incentive to keep that. So Mugambi, you're right. Just paying people more money does not necessarily mean that. The question is opportunity. And if I, as I conclude, one of the things that I think the Kenyan public should be less, um, um, I mean, receptive to is the idea that government spending more of your taxes is good for you. It isn't. You're actually just making a few more people have places in which to go. So as you see, the, when incentives are taught in economics class, one of the things that they tell you is that you understand incentives because the thief or the robber, right, runs to the bank because that's where the cash is. I mean, they don't, they don't go to a place where there's no cash. So people steal from government because that's where most of the money is packed and it's easy to steal. Government money in Kenya and government property is very easy to steal because no one's watching. Everybody is busy taking their piece. So I think one of the things we need to ask ourselves is, I'll give you a final example as I conclude. Let's, let's take arbitrarily Germany or even the country that colonized us, the UK. They have a monarchy as well, and they are very, very, very attached to it in the case of the UK. When the UK had an income per capita equivalent to 1,400 pounds per person per year, which is what we have in Kenya, the total government size, the total government size, right? Total government size was 9% of the gross domestic product. In other words, it was taking 9% of that income to run government. In Kenya, the total government size is 
$2,000 a year, which is 200,000 shillings, but government takes from you 56, actually, no, 61, 62,000 shillings of the 100, of the 200,000 that you do. Government in Kenya is far too big for the incomes that we have here. So that gives a lot of scope for people who want to generate projects and stuff like that. Um, and then obviously the design of the system and the way it is, it is parceled. It's, 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 it's just unacceptable. Final example, as I conclude, in the year 2017, we had this project and we had a lot of uh, students. So one of the things is we took about nine students and we asked them to go through government uh, accounts, those big books. And one of the things that we calculated was how much money the government of Kenya was spending on fuel. I think in those days, fuel premium was closer to 100 shillings or thereabouts, not as high as it is. Uh, what well, it was a little higher, but of course it had gone down. But we found out that the government of Kenya, outside the police and the security services, right? So if you put all those, all those together, outside parastatals, buys fuel, I kid you not, buys fuel that would travel 1 million kilometers per day. So we were asking ourselves, maybe that's a lot, maybe it isn't, but I'm asking myself, where are these government cars going to? And fuel 100 kilometers a day. It was close, something close to 120,000 liters of consumption. Uh, I feel like we're losing you, Kwame. Perhaps we lost him there. Uh, what was the order? Well, yeah. Do you want to speak? Final thoughts? Yeah, I, I think I'll just add on what Kwame is saying, and uh, I agree with him. Uh, there's a lot of wastage, and that's what he was alluding to. I mean, if you look at uh, the, the the money that we, we, we collect, again, I, I go back to, you know, the expenditure problem that I was talking about. Uh, we collect maybe 125 uh, billion a month, uh, then we spent 53 or so on uh, debt, uh, 53 or 52 or so on salaries, and we spent uh, $50 billion, uh, on uh, what is called uh, I and, uh, sorry, O&M. Now, that's operational maintenance. And Kwame was talking about, uh, you know, fuel that can take government uh, to a million kilometers uh, from Harambe Avenue, uh, you know, a day. Now, why would we spend 50 billion a month on uh, operational maintenance? And that's, for example, an area we can look at and cut. It's because if you look at, uh, you know, a PS has two cars, one in uh, the rural home and one in Nairobi. The directors have cars. Uh, you, you see someone with three cars. Uh, CS has all these cars. So basically, it's just wastage government buys. You know, I, I visited a friend of mine one time and uh, I was asking him, you know, he had all three newspapers and he told me, look, I told the government, can you just give me uh, 60 bob to buy uh, newspapers, uh, you know, each of the dailies a day? Because when I look at the numbers, I'm, I'm getting this at 130 shillings uh, each. So you can see all this uh, wastage. is It's designed uh, and it's very hard to get rid of because the bureaucrats, the system is so, so hard to crack that then uh, that guy is a big boss. And he told me, he was told, oh, you know, Mkubwa, if it were, you find me in Amnai. 
Uh, you are new to this uh, government. And the guy was coming from outside. So basically, he tried his best, but he was really frustrated. A junior, junior officer will tell him, Serikali uh, I think we lost Mohammed again. Uh, uh, so Reginald and uh, Mugambi, maybe first and then Reginald. Closing thoughts? No, 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 none. I am okay. quite happy. Right. All right, Reginald, and then we can finish with John. Uh, I was about to fear to speak because it seems like everyone who's speaking is being <laughs> is disappearing. Um, I, I guess that by my, my closing um, thoughts is when, when we look at these things, we, we need to look at them um, from, from a sober perspective. Uh, most of these things, especially when it comes to the economy, it has so many moving uh, parts. Um, for example, government expenditure, there's government wage expenditure, there's government expenditure on goods and um, goods and services, and uh, con budgetary consolidation um, has 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 a negative impact on GDP, employment, and consumption, um, especially in an economy where the government is 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 a, currently so far a big player, a big employer. Um, uh, the central bank is managing the currency, so the effects of a consolidation will be even more pronounced, um, so to speak. Um, our external debt position will not allow us to let it to free float because um, any free floating will automatically increase. Um, our liability, so the balance sheet of the, uh, the of the country will 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 suffer. So if you look at the the problem that we have, um, which is a problem of stealing actually, and that's why we are saying keep, uh, kleptocracy. Um, why is it a problem? Is because most of this expenditure that we say government expenditure is actually not going to government expenditure because the government is actually buying goods and services. Um, and then and, uh, and paying wages, we should be seeing incomes going up, we should be seeing aggregate demand going up because then there's demand coming in from that side. But we don't see that because that money is actually is actually stolen. So you'll find uh, sealing those leakages um, will be very key. And, and I think I will I will stand on on, on my on, on my suggestion that the government that comes needs to one strengthen institutions. Uh, to deal with the debt. If you're not going to deal with the debt, you're not going to have any income to do anything. You'll just have to borrow again. We're already in a debt crisis. We're already in a debt trap because we have to borrow to pay debt. We are not able to generate enough revenue to pay uh, debt. And for Kenya, as a long-term perspective, they need to look at the, 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 the two major problems which I see in the country, which is an income problem and um, a rural poverty. So if the economic policy has to figure out how do we sort out these two issues, if we're actually going to start moving people from poverty, because the, the purpose of all this is supposed to move people out of poverty. So if your economic policy is not going to move people out of poverty, um, then it's not going to, it's not going to work, um, so to speak. And uh, in my opinion, uh, if we can shut down the taps where the leakages are, um, strengthen institutions, then we can start implementing policies um, one um, that actually uplift people from poverty by increasing incomes and sorting out the rural poverty, so that we can start seeing some upward mobility, whether through urbanization of the rural areas or getting um, 
what is it called, getting industry to move to the rural areas. And by industry, I'm not talking about going to build a big Coca-Cola plant. Uh, we, are, we are a labor-intensive economy, and we have a huge chunk of young people um, who are getting into the labor force every year. So if you think we have an employment problem right now, you wait until 10 years, until all these people who are between uh, 15 and, and, and 25, all of these people are going to be graduating into the workforce and we are not creating enough jobs. Why? Because we are not supporting the SMEs uh, to be able to scale, to absorb um, these people. So, my, my, yeah, it's we have a lot of work to do as a country, a lot of work. It's going to be painful, uh, as uh, Mohammed said. There's no way we're going to do this work without uh, going through the pain. Um, and whoever is going to come as a, a leader has to be able to explain this to the population, uh, manage expectations, uh, and able to lead the country out of the mess that we are in. Uh, step by step but there's no big bang miraculous thing that will happen um in one year two year three years it actually just has to be a continuous process dealing with each issue as we go along and thank you for for hosting me perfect uh it's been a good space it's almost two and a half hours now so i think i'll give back to john maybe to have some closing words and also tell us a little bit about the initiative uh what led him to uh create this space today because this is uh his idea also and they have a series called tao and they i think it's being narrated in shang uh all about money so they're they're exploring very we are exploring very as aspects of money so i think uh today is mostly about kleptocracy and such a, a such an important discussion to have and i hope that we can inspire uh people to actually create a, a country and an economy where people it's less dependent on kleptocracy and more meritocracy so john uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about thou and what you're thinking around that all right thanks thanks a lot and um, thank you to all of the speakers uh, here this evening i'll try and be quick so it kicks me out thou was actually an, an idea created by our graphics um, out of a concern that he and many of us um, in the newsroom at African Censored have had about the fact that these money conversations are just not being, are just not, um, you know, being spoken about everywhere. Or if they are, they're not being, they're not being translated as effectively as possible to the public so that when people um, see that there's more, more months than money, um, they can understand that it has a lot to do with what's happening at the top, and they can trace it right down to their pockets. So that's really the the, the issue with Thao, and and it's a it's a great narrative series. Um, the first episode is out on our on our on our YouTube uh, channel. I hope that everybody can watch it and watch what's coming every Tuesday. Um, um, Eric and the guys at Mwango Mwango Capital very graciously um, accepted this request that I had for us to do something combined and have a money conversation. Um, um, every every other Tuesday, um, at least, uh, th that's the hope. And as uh, as uh, Eric has said, um, this was the first one. We're hoping to have lots more um, of these kinds of conversations so that by the time we go to the ballot, there really is a change in how we think about who it is that we're voting for, or at the very least, a change at some level. Um, um, and, and this really is the money election. Um, if, if you were to think about it in, in, in those terms. We are short of money, and yet all of the promises that are being made are being made as if we have money to burn from, from every corner of this country. 
So this money election needs to be one that we really pay attention to. And as African censored, that's our commitment uh, to try and keep um, hold uh, people's feet to the fire. Um, once again, I'd just like to say a very quick round of thanks to, to Reginald, um, to Mogambi Nandi, who joined um, later in the conversation, as well as Mohamed Walia, um, to Kwame Uwino, um, as always. And um, my apologies and thanks to Wanjiro Gekonyo, who was supposed to be on this space, but uh, Twitter space did its thing. I'd like to also thank all 800 plus of you who are still on this, on this Twitter space right until the end. This has been one of the most popular Twitter spaces um, that we've had, um, and I think uh, uh, Mwango Capital would say the same. Um, we're going to try and keep um, the momentum up with, with speaking about these really important issues. As, as you recall, our last one was about Rivayala bodies, um, and we'll return to that. But right now, I'd just like to say um, thank you for listening. Um, please do subscribe to both Mwango Capital um, and Africa Uncensored. Um, lots happening every day on, on those um, respective handles. And uh, please um, continue to give your suggestions about what it is that we can cover next as journalists um, and where it is that you feel that we'd be able to improve um, in our performance. With that, I would like to say a very, very, very good night to everybody on this space. Um, good luck in the coming days. And we'll meet again in coming uh, in coming opportunities um, to engage with one another. Asanteni, Nakwairini. Goodbye. Uh, Becky, I think you can now close the space. Thank you so much for joining us, all of you. Bye.